This is hell. This Week in Hell, eco-socialism promises to fight climate change while transforming the capitalism that caused global warming, despite critics arguing it's impossible to do both at the same time. The new world disorder is one of no-go zones, which struggle to contain all the West's fears and threats, a struggle that only increases risk and danger for us all. The U.S. Census has a history of enforcing racism that dates back to its very beginning, long before President Trump's proposed citizenship question. Joe Biden is awful, and there's no way his disorganized campaign and racist record will land him the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. Is there? Jeff Dorchin will have a moment of truth, which I'll tell you all about in a moment. And during my monologue, capitalism ruins everything, even weed. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell, this week's live four-hour This is Hell is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM, Evanson, streaming live right now at thisishell.com, where we have a link for the live stream, and podcast in its entirety shortly after our live broadcast this week, also at thisishell.com. And we are rebroadcasting in abbreviated form on the South Side's Lumpen Radio and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio and on Instagram at thisishell. During this week's hell, some are saying it's not absolutely necessary to completely dismantle capitalism in order to fight climate change, that it's not required for us to dismantle one to fight the other. Others are arguing that you can't truly fight climate change unless you get rid of what caused it, and that's capitalism. We'll get to the bottom of this debate when we start this week's show by speaking with political scientist Theo Rio Francos, who wrote the In These Times article, A Path to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice. It was a response to two other articles at In These Times, one by Tobita Chow and the other by Past This Is Hell guest Ashley Dawson. Tobita argued we don't have to kill capitalism to address global warming, while Ashley said capitalism has got to go if you're going to do anything about climate change. Thea argue, argues you can simultaneously take on climate change and the capitalism that caused it through eco-socialism. Thea also posted the Descent magazine article, What Comes After Extractivism, reliance on resource rents, keeps Latin American countries stuck in relations of dependency and undermines the core leftist goal of equality. The left must find another way. In that piece, Thea explains what can happen when leftist economic policies are funded by the climate change-causing resource extraction industry. Thea's forthcoming book is Resource Radicals, from petro-nationalism to post-extractivism in Ecuador. Thea is an assistant professor of political science at Providence College and is on the steering committee of the Democratic Socialists of America Eco-Socialists. Find all her work at TheaRioFrancos.com. After our talk with Thea on eco-socialism and funding policies, funding leftist policies during climate change, we have created what our second guest calls a new world disorder, an unprecedented attempt by the West to contain all the evils that the West itself 
unleashed on the world, from drug trafficking to environmental destruction to terrorism. All these self-made Frankensteins the West now fears so much. In order to keep all the world's problems at bay and far, far away, the West has declared a number of countries to be no-go zones. And the nations within those no-go zones are increasing rapidly in the second hour of this week's show. We'll find out what it means to be suffering from the new world disorder, where we see everything as risks and dangers. When we speak with returning This Is Hell guest, anthropologist Ruben Anderson, author of No Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our Politics. Ruben is an anthropologist and associate professor in the Department of International, Rela- uh, International Development at the University of Oxford. You can find out more about Ruben at RubenAnderson.com. Following our talk on how fear is shaping our planet, President Trump's attempt to racialize the U.S. Census is actually nothing new. The U.S. Census has been racist since the very beginning and only got more racist along the way. In fact, it got so good at being racist that other racist countries started using U.S. Census technologies created by IBM. That's right, U.S. racism led to a racist census that ended up in the hands of, you guessed it, the Nazis. We'll have the racist history of the U.S. Census when we have the return of investigative journalist Yasha Levin, who posted the Medium.com article, The Racist and High-Tech Origins of America's Modern Census. Yasha is author of Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. You can find out more about Yasha's book at SurveillanceValley.com. This is Yasha's fifth appearance on This Is Hell. In the fourth and final hour of this week's show, Joe Biden announced he will run for president. And immediately, the news media was reporting poll numbers that showed Biden to be the front runner, far outpacing the entire field, doubling the support his nearest competitor had received. Problem is, Biden's racist, sexist, anti-choice, pro-war history and fealty to the banking industry, all coupled with an inability to have any national political success in the past, all likely mean that, yet again, a Joe Biden for president campaign is doomed even before it got started. Or at least let's hope so, as Trump would mop the floor with Joe. Our final guest this week and also returning to the show is Andrew Coburn, who wrote the Harper's cover story, No Joe, Joe Biden's Disastrous Legislative Policy. Andrew is Washington editor of Harper's Magazine. Andrew was on most recently in December 2016 when he posted another Harper's cover story, the prophetic column, The New Red Scare, Reviving the Art of Threat Inflation. Andrew's most recent book is Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. Then we'll wrap the whole show up with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff catalogs evidence of our decreasing intelligence, or at least his. And I'll explain how the market will screw up pot like it screws up everything else. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, I'm shook, Chuck. How was that? Uh, I finally got new neighbors moved into the house next door. Uh-huh. What kind of sick, depraved people put up an American flag in front of their house in the daytime and then at night take it down and then in the daytime put it back up? I have a kid. How am I supposed to explain this to my kid? Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. Uh, This week's hangover cure rules. Uh, It is Spice Bag, the takeaway favorite of the Irish. Takeaway Irish, takeaway being Irish for to go. According to another hangover cure from the article at IrelandBeforeYouDie.com ranked 
or headlined, ranked Ireland's 10 favorite hangover foods. If you're more of a stay-at-home-and-suffer-in-silence type, damn, did you write this for me, Chuck? <laughs> then the takeaway is probably where you go for your hangover cure. And if you are Irish, then a spice bag from the Chi- from the Chinese. Oh, boy. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that's a mistake right there. The no, Ch- it's not. That's how They just wrote the Chinese. Yes, that's how oh, Ireland, that's how they talk. Damn, Ireland. I know. Uh, then a spice bag from the Chinese is something you'll be familiar with. A delightful concoction of chips, deep-fried chicken balls, Crispy chicken, peppers, onions, and chili, all shaken up in a bag containing a perfect mix of spices. A spice bag is a serious hangover remedy. And to try the original spice bag recipe, head to the Sunflower Chinese in Templog, where the genius staff first threw it together in 2010 and makes this week's hangover cure the spice bag, a takeaway favorite of the Irish. But made by the Chinese. I don't get that. Every time I read Irish papers, there's like this subtle racism in it. I just don't... You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. Please, I am begging you. I am on my knees begging you. I'm not really, but let's just say I am for the sake of this piece. I am begging you. Do not. Do not legalize it. It is imperative that we does not become legal. I know you think it's a great song, but legalize it is a real, real bad idea. Now, I've done it. I not only reveal myself as being against legalizing pot, but I'm also a traitor to one of the greatest spokespersons ever for marijuana, an icon to all stoners everywhere. But I'm sorry, Mr. Marley. Legalizing it is just dumb. I'm not saying using or growing herb or possessing any amount should be a crime definitely should not be a crime, and the only reason it is a crime is because of racist white supremacy making it illegal while legalizing far more dangerous drugs like OxyContin. And if you don't know, white privilege gave us the opioid crisis. You really got to go back and listen to our conversation with historian Donna Murch on last week's show at thisishell.com. And look what good making OxyContin legal did. Led to at least 400,000 deaths from overdoses in the United States. That's more than heroin, cocaine, meth or antidepressants. The only drug that took more lives from 1999 to 2017 was fentanyl, the cheaper and more dangerous substitute for heroin, which OxyContin users had to turn to once their prescriptions ran out with any help in getting off their drug. Breaking an addiction can be a very expensive thing, and if you go to the wrong addiction care center, it can be completely ineffective, all of which means with our wonderfully privatized healthcare system that is both the most expensive in the world and not as effective as far cheaper models, the market says fentanyl, and that's the problem with legalizing ganj. Once it is legalized, that literally means it is put under the auspices of the law, and the law is written to enforce capitalism, even if that means through the police by force. Once in the market, our glorious grass will be corrupted by corporations, investors, shareholders, profiteers, commodification, and financialization. And financialization is still unbelievably not a word recognized by Apple's word-like pages program. It it, it boggles the mind. Capitalism motivates competition and thus innovation, granted. But guess what Reefer doesn't need? Innovation. Outside of creating and sharing of hybrids, there's really no innovation required. Sure, growing bud has changed over the years with hydroponic technology advancing so indoor growing and controlled environments can cultivate better green. But other than the advances in lighting technology, it's pretty much the same as it has been forever. 
Sure, pages of high times are filled with ads for growing paraphernalia and new miracle chemicals to create the best kind, but the vast majority of it is complete crap, and overuse of them is one of the most common mistakes growers make. I'm told by a source that amateur growers often throw everything at their plants. They read some review for some chemical online that can't be bad because it says it's organic, and the next thing the would-be grower has is a crop that looks like it's been in the sun too long when it hasn't been in the sun at all. Capitalism doesn't innovate to make better chronic or better anything else. It innovates to create the thing that makes the most profit, and that doesn't necessarily mean the best product, just the best packaging marketing, and distribution. Think of the innovations capitalism has already brought to Spliff. Flavored papers, for one. That's exactly what I want my cheech to taste like. High C fruit punch. I mean, some people love their salad so much they call it their baby. But why do all flavorings with Chong have to be so childish? Same thing goes with those vape pens. And do those things really get you high when you're not smoking wax or, or dabbing? Chiba don't need no innovation, so keep your capitalist innovations away from it. For all capitalism's great innovations, ever wonder why it never came up with an innovation that would end poverty, but it sure can put out a new cell phone every year or so, all packed with built-in obsolescence that will lead it to soon be discarded and replaced by the next mode of obsolescence. Don't legalize it because legalizing it leads to it being limited by rules and regulations that are always made to benefit the wealthy. As they've done here in Chicago, the only people who can grow are dispensaries and they own and the only people who can own dispensaries are people with a lot of money. There are tons of monetary requirements. You don't think that making the dank legal was going to lead to job opportunities for poor people, the people who have been running the marijuana industry forever, did you? Of course, that's not going to happen. Instead, whatever money made by anyone off Dubage, when it is legalized, will be redirected from the less well-off to the very well-off. That's what the law under capitalism does. It funnels the benefits of capitalism to the very wealthy, and we all hang out down here by the urinal of capitalism. Hope for a little tiny bit of trickle-down. In capitalism's ideal world, the skunkiest of skunk would all be owned by the 1%, and poor people would have to buy it from them instead of the old relationship where rich people would actually have to ask poor people for something, anything. You had to know the rich weren't going to allow that relationship where they're dependent on the poor to last forever. Please don't legalize it, decriminalize it, and leave it there. But that's not what will happen. Conservatives will worry about the flower's impact on the children while insisting on cutting funding of children's daycare, health care, and education. Liberals will attempt cons consensus with these two-faced conservatives by assuring the broccoli's safety through legalization despite nobody ever dying from an overdose of the Cali. And in the end, conservatives and the right and corporations will get what they wanted all along to take control of a market that hitherto they could not legally enter. In the end, all the high-end keef will be capitalized into leafy cabbage that simulates a feeling that reminds you of what it was once like to get high. And after every hit, you will look at that fully corporatized, commercialized, marketized substitute that has been innovated to death, and you'll wonder why it was ever legalized and realize, wait, you know why. Because 
This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what's on the other side of the wall? What's on the other side of the wall? All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's show. I think this week's winner gets a stainless steel This Is Hell coffee mug. Is that true? Uh, I got that Ruben Anderson book. Oh, so you did get the Ruben Anderson book. So you will be getting the No-Go Zones book by Ruben Anderson. Again, that's anthropologist Ruben Anderson's book, No-Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our politics. Again, question from hell is, what's on the other side of the wall? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, eco-socialism promises to fight climate change while transforming the capitalism that caused global warming, despite critics arguing it's impossible to do both at the same time. And extractivism is a really bad solution for left-wing policies. The New World Disorder is one of no-go zones which struggle to contain all the West's fears and threats, a struggle that only increases risk and danger to us all. The U.S. Census has a history of enforcing racism that dates back to its very beginning, long before President Trump's proposed citizenship question. Joe Biden is awful, and there's no way his disorganized campaign and racist record will land him the Democratic Party's racial or presidential nomination, is there? During the moment of truth, Jeff catalogs evidence of our decreasing intelligence, or at least his. We'll also have Rotten History, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishellradio. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow hacker psychedelic warlord, who you may know as... Beto O'Rourke. We've got more news about our upcoming anniversary party happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 27th. So put that on your calendar. Of course, we'll have the question from Al. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online, some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support and get a free gift. And what's happening on upcoming episodes of this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is Hell. There's an ongoing debate on whether climate change can be addressed at the same time as the capitalism that caused it. Can we deal with both at the same time? While our first guest this week believes both can be done with eco-socialism, she also warns us about leftist policies that are funded by climate change-causing extractive resources. Here to talk eco-socialism and extractivism, political scientist Thea Riofrancos wrote the In These Times article, A Plan to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice. And she also posted the Dissent Magazine article, What Comes After Extractivism. Welcome to This Is Hell, Thea. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. You can read her writing at InTheseTimes.com as well as at DissentMagazine.org. And you can find all of her work at TheaRioFrancos.com. Follow Thea on Twitter at TRioFrancos. Uh, so, oh, that's right. I wanted to start on the, on the article about eco-socialism first, and I have them in the wrong order. So now I have to go grab my notes. Yeah, here it is. So uh, your article at In These Times a couple weeks ago, A Path to uh, Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice, was actually a response to another article at In These Times by Tabita Chow called We Don't Have Time to End Capitalism, But Growth Can Still Be Green. The article by Tobita is subheadlined with a descriptor. 
Growth, energy use, and emissions are historically linked, but this trend could end with mass investment in renewables and energy efficiency. And you write in your responding story, while the question of whether we should address capitalism first or climate change first is often posed in sequential terms, it's a false choice, though a compelling one. Why is addressing climate change first or capitalism first a false choice? Um, so it is a false choice because I think that as social movements um, and also some of our kind of allied uh, insurgent um, elected members um, of, of Congress and, and at, at the kind of city and state level as well, um, are focusing on policies that can address both social economic inequality and forms of domination and exploitation at the same time that they address climate emissions. Um, and I want to address really briefly why I think it's a compelling one. Um, in the next 10 years that we have to seriously change our energy systems, our kind of entire ways of life and built environment in order to avoid further climate um, crisis, it, it seems quite compelling to argue that it's not possible to undo an entire model of accumulation that's been built over hundreds of years and is deeply entrenched across the globe. Um, but I think what's important is not to view the matter as ending capitalism before we address climate crisis, but rather finding ways, and there are many ways, to address climate crisis that also begin to chip away at some of the core um, pillars of capitalism, whether that's private property or profit um, or privatized forms of consumption. And so thinking about demands that social movements can make and then some of the policies that those demands might inspire that chip away both at socioeconomic inequality and address mitigating um, uh, and, and creating more resiliency uh, uh, around uh, the climate crisis that, that's already unfolding and has been unfolding for, for a while now. We recently spoke with sustainability scholar Jem Bendel, and he was saying that it, you, you know, sustainability is not sustainable and that we need to go to the next step, which is deep adaptation. Are you talking, well, can capitalism adapt to climate change? Is that what you're talking about when you're saying that it is compelling, that, there, that we can adapt capitalism to climate change? Well, I think that the green capitalists and the clean tech industry, which is now like a hundreds of billion dollar industry that's investing in quote unquote clean fuels and clean technology, green technology, does think that that's possible. Um, and I think that certainly forms of investment can take place, you know, within capitalism that begin to transition societies to low or no carbon energy. I think that's not only possible, but it's already happening. So to argue otherwise would be unempirical. Um, but those forms of transition, I agree, are not ultimately sustainable because just swapping out one energy source for another doesn't address the fact that capitalism as a system externalizes at environmental and social costs um, and never sort of pays the bill and is always going to kind of ex expand more than is doable with within planetary limits. So I think that while you can change the energy sources and you can potentially lower emissions while not touching the capitalist model of accumulation, capitalism itself cannot be sustainable, at least not in the form that you know we've known it to exist over the past hundreds of years, which is why I'm suggesting that instead of um, sort of thinking about how to adapt capitalism, we should think about reforms um, and that are that are transformative in some way that come out of longstanding social movement, environmental 
ecological and social justice movement demands that also get at some of the most oppressive aspects of capitalism. So let me give some examples to make this a little bit more concrete. Um, There are demands around the country for better mass transit systems. There are demands around the country for addressing the exorbitant cost of housing, which is now one of the primary causes of sort of um, uh, the the decline in working class, you know, kind of material well-being is both stagnating wages, but also extremely high costs of rent. Um, there are demands popping up that are very interesting for public, democratic, and community control over utilities, over the grid, right? So each of these, you know, if we actually had mass transit, if we actually had a system of zero-carbon social housing, if we actually had democratically controlled, decarbonized grids and utilities, we would be doing two things at once. We would be addressing some of the the deep forms of exploitation and oppression that occur under capitalism that deny people uh, the sort of means of their own existence in, in housing and transit and other such things. And we would also be moving towards a more sustainable society that's not just about switching out the energy source. So I don't think that's, you know, a small task or, or, or unimportant, but it's also about, for example, in the case of transit and housing, collectivizing and socializing the way that we consume. Because one, one of the, the aspects of capitalism, especially in its sort of like American post-war mass consumption guise, is the fact that we all consume privately and we also cons- we also consume things that are manufactured to be obsolete, right? So we're always we're consuming individually, and we're consuming as much as you know the market will sell us. So um, I think that transitioning to um, social and collective forms of consumption is a much more rational use of resources, right? So an electric bus is a better use of resources than all of us owning individual Teslas. So what I'm getting at in the in these time piece is thinking about demands that simultaneously demand a different form of energy and decarbonization, but also think about reorganizing the way that we relate to one another in ways that that little by little, um, though hopefully, you know, rapidly enough to address the climate crisis, actually change our social relationships, actually change the way that we produce, consume, and work, um, um, as well as changing the, 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 the energy source. And just to reinforce what you said. I want to quote your article where you say, this is not to say that an eco-social strategy has no political tensions or challenges. There will necessarily be changes in habits of consumption, habits that are by no means confined to the affluent. We need to catalyze a change in social values, wherein communal activities such as recreational sports, dancing, art projects, and book clubs, as well as forms of collective consumption, not only of transit and housing, but of food, theater, film, and much more, become valorized. So, Will the biggest change be a societal change, be one where we collectively are working together more, are connected more? Will we have less time to ourselves as we will be dedicating more time to everyone else? Because the thing that I'm concerned about is just like you heard these uh, claims by conservatives that climate change was a socialist plot, I'm afraid that within this, they'll see this is a plot against the individual. So how difficult will it be to have that societal change from one going from one that is so individual oriented to one that's collectively oriented? I like that a lot. I think it is a plot against the individual, at least the individual defined as a sort of property-owning consumer, right, as we sort of defined it, especially in the post-war period to, to the present in the United States. Um, I, I, go, I want to reiterate, though, and, I, and, I, and the quote that you read, I think, I think hopefully makes this clear, that 
my sort of vision of an eco-socialist utopia, right? The thing that sort of gets me up in the morning when I think about what is the society that I'm fighting for is a profoundly pleasurable society, right? It's a society of of more time to socialize, of more time to engage in those activities that you just listed of learning and dancing and eating together. And and these are the types of activities that already give me pleasure when I when I have time to engage in them in in, in our existing society. But but the but an eco socialist low carbon society would involve more forms of time spent with meaningful social relations rather with than consuming junk that doesn't actually make us happy, right? Um, um, so I think that that's, that's a, a key point to, to point out. And there's a recent um, article out in The Intercept by, by Kate Aronoff about how a Green New Deal might make us happier, right? So um, I think that a plot against the individual, again, as defined as a sort of um, overworked, over-consuming individual, that really is not happy at the end of the day. I mean, we even have a crisis in the U.S. with forms of addiction, with increasing suicide rates. I mean, I don't think that anyone could argue that the, the masses of working class people in the U.S. are are happy with their existence. Um, so I think that you know now is a moment to kind of rethink what we value and think about ways that a society that values more time together and more pleasurable um, um, activities would also be a society that is better for better for the environment. You're right. We need to ensure that redistribution and the public provisioning of goods and services like transit and healthcare would offset the increased costs of some consumer items. So is that the hardest message to convey to people who are skeptical about the near-term impact of climate change? That is convincing them that public provisioning of goods and services like transit and healthcare would offset any increased costs, including taxes. Is the most difficult thing to change people's minds on taxes and public funding will be offset by lower costs? Well, so yeah, I think that there's a couple of things kind of in, in terms of the economics of this that, that I'm getting at in this sentence and that you're also bringing up Um some interesting new survey data by the data, uh, the Center for Data Progress, I think they're called, shows surprisingly to me um, that Americans that they surveyed actually are in favor of increasing taxes on the wealthy, not on everybody, but on the wealthy, um, on the ultra-rich, um, in order to fund a Green New Deal. And that in and of itself, it might not surprise them on the left that people would support that, but I think that we both know that there's a very deep anti-tax sentiment in the U.S. And even when you ask people and make it clear that it's taxes on that wouldn't affect them, that would affect the, the better off, people still are hesitant to support tax increases. But this interesting new data shows that there's growing support for tax increases to fund a Green New Deal so long as those tax increases are progressive in nature and affect, you know, the 1% or however you want to frame it. So, so I think that attitudes on that are shifting a bit in interesting ways that a left-wing kind of project around the Green New Deal could further kind of shift um, uh, that social opinion. Um, so that, that's one set of things. Um, another, another set of things is, is what I'm talking about in this sentence, which is that, you know, right now, we are, we in the U.S. and we in many places in the world are kind of used to artificially cheap forms of consumption, right? The fact that, you know, buying a new cell phone every year or eating red meat that is super cheap, especially if you, you know, get it at a fast food place, that feels cheap to us. But there's a whole system that makes that artificially cheap, right? Um, some of that has to do with the fact that corporations don't ever pay the full bill for social and environmental costs of, for example, the factory farm system. Some of that also has to do with the fact that our own tax dollars and, and you know, government subsidize um, in industrial agriculture and make it artificially cheap. So there's a whole set of, of processes that make our consumption artificially cheap and allow us to consume even as, you know, wages are stagnating. So um, there's a tricky set of 
public policy changes that need to both, on the one hand, force corporations to pay the full cost of their environmental and social harms um, and also regulate those industries much more so there are fewer social environmental harms. But then the issue comes up immediately of people who um, um, don't make very much money and are used to sort of being able to buy some of these things with their, with their income and how those prices might increase for food or um, for, other, for other consumer goods that, whose prices would increase if corporations actually sort of embedded the full cost of their environmental and social impacts into the price. So in order to offset that, I think we need to think as much as possible about what some scholars call the social wage, like that, that is the, and what we might call in the U.S. kind of welfare or public provision. So thinking about ways that individuals um, with higher taxes on the wealthy um, um, could, we could fund things like mass transit, like social housing, so that each individual wasn't paying so much of their individual income for things that ensure their basic social reproduction, like their home and their transit to work and those sorts of things. So if we were, as a society, if each individual was paying less of that because that was socialized, then people could afford to pay a little bit more for their for some consumer goods and food and things like that, and those those consumer goods could reflect more the real social environmental cost of their of their um, of their production. We are speaking with political scientist Thea Rio Francos. She wrote the In These Times article, "A Path to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice," which you can find at InTheseTimes.com. She also posted the Dissent Magazine article, "What Comes After Extractivism," which you can find at DissentMagazine.org. Thea's upcoming book is called "Resource Radicals: From Petro Nationalism to Post Extractivism in Ecuador," and she is on the steering committee of the Democratic Socialists of America Eco Socialists. You can find out more about Thea at Thea Rio Francos. Dot com. You mentioned built-in obsolescence earlier. You write, we must eat less red meat and devalue the consumption of plastic junk and latest model cell phones and other tech that not only contribute to social alienation, but are tremendously destructive to the planet. Manufactured for obsolescence, shipped across great distances in carbon-spewing ships and trucks, and relying on neo-colonial patterns of cheapened nature and labor in the global south. To you, what does planned, built-in obsolescence. What does that reveal to you about the nature or maybe the state of capitalism today? Well, I think it kind of picks up on some of the points that, that I was um, making before, that the, the kind of definition of, of the individual as a consumer and the fact that we are constantly being um, marketed sort of the next model and that our very deep identities and affects and sort of ways of being in the world are structured around consuming the latest model cell phone or the latest model um, computer or clothing. And, you know, fashion is, is, is also part of this. I don't mention this in the article, but the extremely cheap, artificially cheap for all of the reasons that I just said, because the corporations never pay the full social and environmental costs of, of, um, of the production of this fashion and including the extremely cheapened labor um, um, that, that is primarily in the global south, but, but also in, in the U.S., um, that, that is the sort of enabling conditions for this extremely cheap consumption. Um, and in this process, we have like lost, I don't want to say this in a nostalgic way, because my goal is not to return to the past, but I just want to note that we have lost kind of like basic relationships and forms of control over the objects in our lives. Like I have a cell phone. I have no idea how to repair it if something went wrong with it. I wouldn't even know um, um, in the U.S. at least like where to take it to repair it if the battery stopped working or if the, you know, what, what, you know, basically we are 
told that if our thing breaks, we are to buy a new one, right? This is not exactly the case everywhere in the world. I think that there are places that still have, you know, this. I, I spent a lot of time in South America researching um, uh, extractivism, which we'll get to next. And there are many more forms of like repair shops around that still exist for electronics, but there are fewer and fewer of those types of electronic repair shops in the U.S., um, partly because the phones are literally, the phones and our, and our iPads and tablets and all sorts of things are designed to be very difficult to repair, and they're designed that way on purpose um, in order to encourage people to buy new objects rather than repairing the ones that we have. And there's an interesting kind of, maybe movement is too strong a word, but there's an interesting kind of environmental ter- and kind of ecological sustainability term that is called the right to repair. And the right to repair just kind of forces us to think about, you know, why do we have no, like, control or relationship or kind of, like, sense of care about the objects that we have? We throw them out as soon as they kind of falter a little bit and buy something new that might be doable for us because of the artificial cheapness of consumer goods, but is contributing to just mountains and mountains of discarded junk that is not being properly recycled, um, um, and is not being reused um, and is just contributing to global warming in a million ways. Um, I'll just note that right now I'm studying lithium extraction in South America. Lithium is a key element that goes into all of our rechargeable batteries, whether cell phones or Teslas, you know, anything that recharges. And lithium will be a key extractive frontier in the renewable transition because the more and more we electrify transit, the more will we need batteries. Um, there's a bunch that I could go into with some of the ecological and social impacts of lithium mining. But for now, I'll just say that, you know, we could be building infrastructures to recycle batteries so that with the coming renewable transition, we don't just throw out these batteries as soon as they're not working perfectly or holding a charge for as long as we would like. And we reuse them for some other application, which can certainly be done. And there's a lot of interesting research on battery recycling. But right now, aside from China, most countries in the world don't really have battery recycling infrastructures, which will, as you can imagine, create like a huge amount of waste once we fully transition to, for example, electrified transit. And while you are writing about eco-socialism, I think this is a good segue into extractivism. You write that a neoliberal climate policy without social justice at the center is a political dead end. Why is climate policy without social justice at its center a political dead end? Well, I think that we saw this with the the ongoing Yellow Vest movement, which is um, um, uh, continuing to protest um, what was originally a tax increase on on fuel in France, but has become a a broader movement than than just that. Um, But I think that we see that when when policymakers implement policies like a carbon price or carbon tax or fuel tax with, you know, some, to some extent, you know, the good intentions of, of um, incentivizing people to shift away from high carbon towards lower zero carbon um, forms of energy, when they do that without taking into account the unequal societies that already exist and therefore the fact that those costs will be borne unequally unless they are intentionally designed to mitigate that that inequality, then people will riot, people will protest, and for good reason, because the working class and economically precarious of the world is struggling to meet their sort of day-to-day needs. And, and so something like a carbon price or a carbon tax, again, without sort of taking into account inequality, um, and without mitigating that inequality in the design of the policy is going to elicit protest or it's just not going to work. It's not going to pass as a policy. So I think that, you know, thinking about ways, which is, which is, I think, the sort of genius of the Green New Deal, not that I don't have some critiques of the, the current proposals in, in, contained in the Green New Deal vision, but 
Um, but I think the genius and the most important part of the Green New Deal is the way that it explicitly connects climate climate crisis and climate um, change to social and economic inequality, which I want to note is a con- is not like an invention of the Green New Deal. Climate justice and environmental justice movements for decades have been saying that inequality and climate change are inextricably linked to one another. The reasons for that are twofold. On the one hand, the most affluent within the U.S. and in the world, both people and kind of entire countries, the most affluent emit the most carbon. Their lifestyles are the most carbon intensive. They consume the most. I mean, they have the most swimming pools. They have the most cars. It's kind of obvious once you start to think about it. But it's an extremely tight correlation. On the other hand, another extremely tight correlation is that those who consume the least and who have contributed the least to global emissions are the most vulnerable to climate change for other reasons that are also, I think, rather obvious once you start to think about it. So there's a deep relationship between inequality and climate change. And I think that that kind of insight also has its sort of like political strategic um, corollary, which is that we need to address both of these at the same time in our social movement demands and also in our public policies. Um, We cannot separate them out because they are inextricably linked. And when we try to separate them out, we get, I think, reasonable forms of of protest and and rioting and, 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 and disaffection among the public who feels that they are being burdened by uh, a problem that they did not individually create. And if they're not well off, they contributed basically nothing to this problem. So let's go from a process that actually addresses capitalism and climate change, eco-socialism, to a way that only addresses capitalism, and that's extractivism. In your article at Descent Magazine, what comes after extractivism, you start by writing on December 14, 2016, leftist President Rafael Correa declared a state of emergency in the province of Morona, Santiago, in the Amazonian region of Ecuador, deploying hundreds of troops and nationalist police. This marked the culmination of years of clashes at the site of an open pit copper mine in the area of San Carlos, which indigenous Shuar people had occupied in protest against the expansion of mining and the threat posed to their territory and livelihoods. So local indigenous people were protesting mine expansion that would threaten their homes and lives. What explains why a leftist president would send in the troops? And was this action by Korea a surprise to his supporters or unpopular? So... So it was not it was not a surprise. I, I don't know if it was a surprise to his sort of like like you know base of of supporters that that were very loyal to him, but it wasn't a surprise more broadly because Korea had been involved for years. Um, Korea came to power in two thousand and seven. Um, my first experience living in Ecuador was the year after that, and so I kind of throughout my my time in Ecuador observed this process un, unfold. He was in power for ten years, totally democratically. He won multiple elections. Um, so from 2007 to 2017, Rafael Correa was in power, along with many other left-wing governments throughout the region, which is called the Pink Tide. Um, and it's called that because they weren't, you know, kind of like state socialists or they weren't revolutionary. So it's not the Red Tide, but it's, it's the Pink Tide. They, they, were, they were moving policies in a leftward direction. So during that time, especially in Ecuador, but also in Bolivia, also to an extent in Venezuela and Brazil and some of the other countries that currently have or did have left-wing governments, there erupted conflicts between indigenous and environmental movements and the left in power over the question of the what's called the extractive model of development. And so this was not a surprise. This was sort of the culmination and one of the most intense instances because the military was there and there was a state of emergency for three months and the Shuar indigenous 
people had reoccupied land that had become a mining camp. And so it was, you know, a particularly contentious and, and, and violent and intense moment of, of conflict. But it was by no means the first one there. I, I personally participated and observed a two-week-long march that went from the Amazon all the way to Quito, 700 kilometers. Um, that was that was sparked by anti-mining protests, um, and, and though it also ended up involving other demands as well. But there was ongoing protests during the Correa administration over this. And why? Um, I, I'll just sort of lay out a little bit the kind of broader um, the, 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 the kind of broader conjuncture. On the one hand, the left was coming to power across Latin America, and Ecuador was one example of that, and that's referred to as the pink tide, as I just mentioned. That started with Chavez coming to power in 1999, and you have for a decade and a half, you have left governments sort of ruling over much of the region. At its height, I think in 2009 or 10, left-wing governments Two-thirds of the region pop, region's population lived under left-of-center or pretty left-wing governments, right? So that's a historic change. For anyone familiar with the history of Latin America, you have in the 70s and 80s these brutal right-wing dictatorships. In the 80s through the early 2000s, in many, in many um, uh, parts of the region, you have neoliberal governments. So it's right in like 2000 where this tide is turning to the left because people are just fed up with neoliberal policies that are not serving them. So a lot of left-wing um, governments are elected. Interestingly, in total historical coincidence, at the same time, you have the beginning of what people refer to as the commodity boom. So that is literally at the same time, from around 2000 to around 2014, it ends abruptly with the fall in the price of oil. But for a decade and a half, you have sustained high prices for commodities like soy, gas, um, gold, copper, oil, all of these primary commodities that all also happen to be Latin America's primary ex exports. So in a way, this is like a win-win situation. I'm going to put the environment and climate and indigenous rights to the side for just a moment to explain some of the positives that this positive opportunities that this opened up for the left in power, and then I'll get into the problems with it. So on the one hand, you have this positive situation. Left-wing governments come to power with tremendous popular support and very broad popular mandates, and they have the fiscal resources. They have the taxes and royalties and rents that come from all of these extractive sectors and these agribusiness sectors that are flooding their treasuries with money, and they have the money to spend on social services, on public infrastructure, um, on all sorts of things that, that affect people's um, material well-being in a very direct way. So they're able to sort of make good on their economic justice promises to pull the poor out of poverty, to reduce inequality, to address longstanding issues of joblessness, of sanitation, um, of, of, of education, all sorts of things. And you see really dramatic changes um, that even sort of like institutions that we wouldn't expect, like the World Bank, like speak positively, positively of, because so many people were pulled out of poverty by public policies that use these resource rents, that use this income from resource extraction in order to benefit um, the majority of the population. And one more thing before getting into some of the ne the deep negatives, the deep problems with this model that I want to note is that it, it wasn't just the invention of these left governments, right? And so I don't like to start the story of the pink tide, even though I kind of just did with these governments coming to power, because before they came to power, there was a decade of social mobilization across the region protesting neoliberal policies. And one of the demands, and these demands were really salient in countries like Ecuador, Bolivia, Venezuela, countries that are dependent on these primary commodities, the demand was these resources have long served foreign capitalists. It's time for them to serve us. It's time to actually redistribute and democratize and have public ownership and state ownership and over these resources so that we can actually benefit from them. Now, 
full expropriation didn't happen in most cases, but the left governments did, to an extent, respond to those demands by instead of using resource rents to sort of um, benefit or profit foreign corporations, they started to use them to actually fund social services. So I want to note that this was social movement demand initially. Um, but what happened was that as this model got intensified, and especially as we move into more and more really environmentally damaging um, forms of extraction, and I'm thinking particularly of large-scale mining, which, as we know from the U.S. history of, of and present of, of mining, you know, removes mountaintops, it moves entire communities, it pollutes water systems. There's no such thing as sustainable or responsible mining. That's kind of a corporate discourse. Um, mining always pollutes. It's just an extremely intensive uh, extractive process. Um, so as that, as it became clear, especially to the local communities, oftentimes indigenous, but also campesino or small farmer, mestizo, not only indigenous, but often indigenous communities, what the social and environmental costs of this sort of economic boom and this kind of redistributive boom were, they began to protest. And this started little by little to become a wedge between some of the very communities and movements that had supported the rise of the left and that had opened up the possibility through their protest against prior neoliberal governments. They began to protest the left. And in, and in several cases, but Ecuador is, I think, a particularly good example of this, it became very polarized very quickly. So Correa could have negotiated or he could have said, let's slow down this extractive process or let's think how to do it you know, with more respect for indigenous rights and actually consulting indigenous communities as is, you know, the international norm and, and national law in Ecuador um, and, and, and think about how to do this in a way that is less harmful, um, less rapid. I mean, just like the pace of extraction became very rapid. Um, and But that didn't happen. It got very polarized. So on the one hand, you had a leftist government with a real wide base of support because many poor and working class Ecuadorians really directly benefited from his policies. Um, but then there were many that didn't in the sense of the, the, the communities that already, um, because of being indigenous and, and being rural and peripheral, already faced other forms of marginalization, just now had like a new thing to contend with, which was the expansion of large-scale mining. So this became a real wedge within the left, among movements, among what we call the popular sectors of the marginalized and exploited and excluded in, in Ecuador. Um, this became a wedge that divided some of those that, that did benefit, um, um, at least during the boom, but again, those benefits end very dramatically once the boom ends, um, and those that were bearing some of the immediate social and environmental costs. Um, though, of course, there are broader planetary environmental costs um, because resource extraction as a model of development also contributes to climate change through deforestation and building roads to export and extract um, um, primary commodities. So it, it, it has planetary effects, but the immediate environmental forms of contamination are what get people to, to mobilize. Do leftist governments like the one in Ecuador, do they have a choice in the way that they can fund their leftist projects? Uh, how dependent are Latin American economies on extraction? And I, I don't want to ask you too many questions in one question, but my follow-up was going to be, and why? Does that say something about the colonial relationship? It absolutely does. I'm going to start with the end, the last question first, and then I'll come back to the fiscal model or to the model of sort of replacing resource rents with something else. Um, it absolutely is rooted in, in colonialism. I, I, I teach Latin American politics, and sort of our first week or two of classes is on the sort of initial colonial encounter, and that is 
when this model of rapacious resource extraction first to fund the Spanish Empire, um, but it doesn't get get dramatically changed at all by by the the by governments after the the independence from the Spanish Empire. It kind of stays in place, and it gets. At some moments in Latin American history, there are interesting attempts to kind of change this model. So in the mid-century or the mid-20th century, you have attempts to kind of shift away from primary resource extraction towards more industrialization. And that works to some extent in some places. I think Brazil stands out, Argentina maybe after Brazil, um, in terms of countries that were able to build to some extent an industrial base that has its own environmental costs. I don't want to downplay that, but is is less immediately dependent on the extraction of resources. But that that is, to some extent, a short-lived moment of what's called sort of developmentalism uh, or kind of state-led industrialization. And then we have those brutal right-wing dictatorships that I mentioned, and then we have neoliberalism. And it's during the neoliberal moment that that the resource extraction sectors are deregulated and that foreign investment is courted. And that's when the model of resource extraction, which has hundreds of years in history, going back to the silver mines of Potosí, um, which funded the Spanish Empire, um, gets really entrenched, re-entrenched again. Um, so, so it has a longer durée history, but there are there, you know, are, are sort of conjunctural changes. And 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 as of the neoliberal period, we're in a moment of re-entrenchment, which unfortunately, while the left was in power, got further deepened because of the very high prices for commodities. It's understandable that it was hard to resist sort of funding social programs, which again were part of their mandate to come to power. With um, with these commodities that had like extraordinarily um, unusually high prices, um, so what could have the left done differently? And I, I want to note that it wasn't like no one tried to do anything different. In fact, Correa himself, and I think he doesn't get enough attention for this um, among those who are critical of his extractivist policies. Um, he did actually implement some changes to the tax code that made the tax system more progressive and that specifically taxed forms of, of wealth and capital um, of the very rich in Ecuador. And that also tried to close some of the issues with tax loopholes that, that allowed for sort of evasion of taxes. And this is just, you know, it, it is, you know, we were talking earlier about taxes in the U.S. and people's anti-tax attitudes. This is a big deal in, in South America as well, and, and even more so because the states are sort of um, historically weak and have low institutional capacity in terms of actually collecting taxes, and the rich have never wanted to pay taxes in in, in South America. And this this actually is another thing that dates even to the early um, to the early independence era um, that that I was just mentioning. So you have a longstanding issue with a lack of a sustainable fiscal base, meaning a lack of a of of a sort of income for the state that comes from property and income taxes, which is more sustainable because you know you know how much property there is, you know how much you tax it, you know how much you're going to get each year where if your ta- where if your fiscal base is based on um, uh, the export of primary commodities each year they might have a different price they're very volatile that decade and a half of high prices was very unusual and since then we've been back to a more normal sort of price volatility for primary commodities so the trick is is to make the the sort of income of the state more dependent on taxing the rich and these are extremely unequal societies, right? So that would also have a an, another benefit, which is making those societies less um, less unequal and reducing some of the political power of the rich by taking some of their wealth away, right? So making the 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 basis of the state um, uh, or the fiscal basis of the state more based on taxes and rather rather than based on um, commodity exports, and that is extremely difficult. Just the sort of bureaucratic task of building up state capacity to actually tax the wealthy and make sure that they don't evade it. But but moving in that direction, um, even if it's through incremental policy reforms, is extremely important for having 
an, an actual pool of money that can be used to spend on the needs of the least well-off, but that doesn't further entrench extractivism. We have been speaking with political scientist Theorio Francos. She wrote the In These Times article, A Path to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice, which you can find at InTheseTimes.com. She also posted the Descent Magazine article, What Comes After Extractivism. You can find that story at DescentMagazine.org. Thea, as we do with all of our guests, we have uh, our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, when the left is in power, both governments and movements claim the mantle of representing the people and pursuing greater equality. As a result, the left is marked by a dilemma from the position of governance. How do you occupy the state at the same time that you seek to transform it? How do you do that? How do you occupy the state at the same time that you seek to transform it? We've had recent guests suggest that by fixing capitalism, by reforming it, you're making an unfair system more powerful. Any reform or fix is a re-entrenchment of capitalism. You're actually enabling the system of oppression that you are fighting against. So to what extent can the state transform the state, no matter how far left the state is? So I think that the the best way to think about this question is to reframe it slightly. Um, And I don't think the state can do anything on its own. I don't even think, you know, with the best person in power, with the best party in power and with the best intentions and the best policy plans, um, those might have some positive effect. But without a broader sort of ecosystem of social mobilization, of disruptive capacity, of collective power, of you know the what we call the sort of ninety nine percent or the popular sectors or the sort of grassroots without that form of social mobilization and social organization there are many limitations to what the state the state um, uh, or 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 a left political party or a leader can do on their own because they will inevitably. Um, run up against the limitations of the power of investors, of the power of the ruling class, um, of the power of the powerful, right? So without without having, um, even with good intentions, there are limitations. And sort of without having a grassroots movement that is has some autonomy from the state, and this is important, has some critical sort of distance from the state and can pressure the state to be as radical as possible, but also can sort of defend left policy advances against the inevitable reaction of the ruling class. Without a sort of healthy ecosystem of organization from below, I don't actually think that uh, even a very enlightened you know, leftist uh, 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 statesperson can accomplish very much on their own. So I agree that there are serious kind of pitfalls and limitations to thinking solely in terms of the state or government or legislative reforms, but I don't think that that makes those irrelevant. What I think is important is a difficult-to-achieve dynamic of of popular kind of mobilization that has some autonomy from the state that isn't co-opted or like a just like a, an arm of the state um, that can put, therefore push the state to be more radical can sort of keep the state accountable right I think about this all the time like you know what if Bernie were to come to power right and we don't know but what if or what if you know a left wing president any whoever it was in the future were to come to power in the U S right I don't think that that means that left movements are no longer necessary I think that they become even more necessary to keep those politicians accountable, and also to defend gains when they happen against the inevitable reaction of the ruling class. So I would reframe that question slightly and think more broadly in terms of state-society relations, more broadly in terms of of forms of um, non-state disruptive political activity from below um, that is pushing the state and simultaneously defending 
left gains. And I think when we look back into history and look at experiences with the left in power, whether it's recently the pink tide in Latin America, whether it's um, um, Allende in, in, in Chile in the 1970s, whether it's Teresa in, in Greece, like whenever we see examples of the left in power, when that dynamic is missing, when we don't have social movements from below holding politicians accountable um, and also defending the gains that are that are made, we see that the left is weakened in, in the state, it's isolated, and it's prone to being co-opted by, by the ruling class or just being like totally limited by the ruling class. Or worse, what happened to um, Allende, we see that you know coups and, and military interventions take place. So I think that dynamic of movements of the left, um, the sort of left in resistance and the left in power is, is really key to understanding how left projects can be sustainable and transformative over time. Thea, thank you so much for being on the show, and we'd love to have you back on when your new book comes out, Resource Radicals, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. So anticipate us annoying you in emails in the very near future. I'd be happy to. Thank you. That's political scientist Theo Rio Franco. She wrote the In These Times article, A Path to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice, and the Dissent Magazine article, What Comes After Extractivism. You can find all of her work at theariofrancos.com. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. We are living in a new world disorder where no-go zones have been created by the West to contain all the evils it unleashed on the world and now fears. We will find out what it's like to live in these unprecedented times when we have the return of anthropologist Ruben Anderson, author of No-Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps. and infecting our politics, Ruben is an associate professor in the Department of International Development at the University of Oxford. Ruben is also the author of Illegality Incorporated, Clandestine Migration, and the business of bordering Europe, and the winner of the—that's also the winner of the BBC Thinking Aloud Award for Ethnography in 2015. And we named Illegality Incorporated one of the best books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2015. And you can hear that 2015 interview with Ruben right now at thisishell.com. If you want to hear This Is Hell next week. Live, you have to subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. Now, we will be playing those live shows in their entirety as one four-hour show here on WNUR next Saturday, beginning at 9 a.m., our regular time. But if you want to hear those shows being recorded live, you have to become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. We are going to be doing two-hour shows on Tuesday, May 8th, and Wednesday, May 9th, at 7 p.m. Chicago time. We will then be premiering those live recordings on WNUR the following Saturday. But if you want to hear those shows live, you have to be a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll tell you more about what's happening on next week's Patreon shows that are going to be replayed here on This Is Hell a little bit later on this week's show. So now is a fantastic time for you to become a subscriber and supporter of This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. This week's question from hell is what's on the other side of the wall? What's on the other side of the wall? All replies will be read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets the book that we're about to discuss Ruben Anderson's No-Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting 
our politics. Again, the question is, what's on the other side of the wall? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all of the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the New World Disorder is one of no-go zones which struggle to contain all the West's fears and threats, a struggle that only increases risk and danger for us all. The U.S. Census has a history of enforcing racism that dates back to its very beginning, long before President Trump's proposed citizenship question. Joe Biden is awful, and there's no way his disorganized campaign and racist record will land him the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, is there? During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin catalogs evidence of our decreasing intelligence, or at least Jeff's. We'll also have Rotten History, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow hacker psychedelic warlord, who you may know as Beto O'Rourke. We've got more news about our upcoming anniversary party happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, on Saturday, July 27th. So put that in your calendar. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell, others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they clicked on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. We are all suffering from a new world disorder of no-go zones created by the fears of the West and meant to contain what is perceived to be all its threats. Here to tell us what a world on fear looks and acts like anthropologist Ruben Anderson is author of No-Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our Politics. Welcome back to This is Hell, Ruben. Many thanks, Chuck. Uh, great to be back on. Ruben is the author of Illegality Incorporated, Clandestine Migration in the Business of Bordering Europe. We talked to him about that back in 2015. Uh, we named that as one of the best books to be uh, featured on our show that year, and you can hear that interview with Ruben whenever you want to at thisishell.com. Find out more about Ruben Anderson at rubenanderson.com. That's with two S's. Ruben, you write about the far-flung no-go zones of our new fearful era, mentioning northern Nigeria, where the Boko Haram operate, and as you quote one Dakar-based aid chief telling you, if your complexion is anything less than a Nigerian's, you won't really be going to that region. How now new are these new no-go places? How new is our fearful era that you write about? When did this begin? Well, it's quite a shift, actually, over the past decade or so. We've seen... Um, in countries from the U.S. to the U.K., how more and more parts of the world are being colored red on travel advisories. The U.K. had some 13 countries, a part of countries, on its no-go list in 97, 1997. Fifteen years later, that was 40, and the U.S. is on a similar trend. You just see this red blob, if you will, of risk spreading across our maps, areas we're no longer supposed to be traveling to. I think that's a tragedy. I think we're seeing, of course, there are real risks out there. There are real changes to deal with. But I think the way in which Western states in particular are dealing with them is, is, is very risky. It's a dangerous game we are playing here with the kinds of interventions that are being staged in these parts of the world, in the divisions that we are drawing across our maps, including through bordering, through drone warfare and so on. I think there's certainly other ways of, of doing this and of reconnecting uh, these parts of the world that are now being separated. How much 
did 9-11 redraw our maps in this new fearful era? What what started this new fearful era? Was it 9-11? Well, clearly 9-11 is a watershed in all sorts of ways. Uh, and we saw a big shift after that towards fighting terrorism and terrorist-related weapons on the U.S.-Mexico border, for instance. Suddenly the border was becoming militarized even more, even more acutely than before in terms of the fear of terror. Uh, we've seen since then, of course, extension of a war on terror that's cost trillions of dollars. One estimate puts the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan and Syria and Homeland Security, the cost of all that at more than $3 trillion between 2001 and 2016. At that same time, we've seen a tenfold increase between the year 2000 and 2015, a tenfold increase in the number of terror attacks worldwide. It's not clearly not really working here. It's a proliferation of fighters in terrorist-related groups, uh, more than t- trebling of, of such fighters over this same time period. So we're seeing a stirring up of, of fear and danger around the world, proliferation of militant groups, insurgencies, and also proliferation of militarized interventions from on high, drone wars, other forms of intervention. So clearly it's been getting a lot worse since, since 9-11. But at the same time, this is not, we shouldn't stare ourselves blind at the past uh, decade and a bit, uh, past couple of decades. Already in the post-Cold War years, already in earlier eras, the post-colonial, the, even the colonial eras, we see certain tropes, certain ways of intervening in these parts of the world uh, return to us today with force. Here be dragons, if you will, are now again being written across our maps. Uh, uh, that sort of fear of, of the dangers lurking on the margins of the world returning to us. And that certainly is not new. That's been with us for a very long time indeed. I want to read a short excerpt from uh, your book because I think this it's very, obviously it's much at the beginning of your book, but at the same time I think it really sets the tone. You, tone. you write, look at the world today, switch on Google Google Maps on your smartphone and search for Timbuktu, that one-time epitome of remoteness, and you will get car directions three days and 14 hours from my Oxford home via the N6 on a route that has tolls, includes a ferry, and crosses through multiple countries. As the app helpfully informs me, you can browse geoposition images from northern Nigeria and the Libyan desert to get customers' restaurant recommendations for Keta in the Pakistan Pakistani-Afghanistan borderlands, a town that you once crossed on your way to India. You add, apparently, for a tandoori treat, don't go here. And then you quote one of the customer comments, Usmania <laughs> at Pishin. And by the way, there's a restaurant called Usmania right next door to my work and right directly <laughs> across the street from my work. Usmania at Pishin, <laughs> stop, sucks. Their service is bad, prices unreasonable, and food tastes horrible. Then you point out, in fact, don't go to any of these places, not if you are a white Westerner, at any rate, these sites are all off limits. They are re-blanked parts of the map at a time of disorderly globalization. What do you mean by re-blanked? What blanked them in the past? Is is it the same thing that is re-blanking them today? Not quite the same thing, but certainly some of these parts of the world, and this is interesting uh, 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 historical dimension to what's going on that we so easily forget when we're obsessed with the latest news about, say, a terror attack, a border crisis, what have you. If you look at areas like the Sahara Desert, Timbuktu there, 
um, in in Mali, in West Africa, on, on the Sahara Desert's edge. This has always been the epitome of remoteness in the Western imagination. It was held up as a prize for the pre-colonial explorers to be the first uh, white explorer, Western explorer, to set foot in this fabled city and to make one's way past all the numerous dangers that were supposed to, to confront the travel there, and many actually didn't uh, make it back alive. Uh, so there was already in that pre-colonial time this Im- imagination around these remote areas, tied to these remote areas, in terms of both the dangers waiting there, but also the prize, the glories waiting in the desert sands. Uh, similarly with other Similarly, remote parts of the world, including in the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands today, which was once a colonial frontier in British times. So some of these border areas, some of these remote places, are now returning to the centre of our politics in a way, occupying prime time uh, news slots whenever an atrocity stage or or, or a bombing range is conducted. Uh, and we tend to now, again, as in those earlier times, attach certain emotions to these places, fears what's waiting for us out, but also a titillation, a fascination with uh, these, as I say, re-blanked parts of the map, uh, the parts of the world we really shouldn't be going to. You write, switch on the news, and it soon becomes clear that deadly threats are lurking in far-fetched corners of our maps, areas where the inhabitants of the rich Western world no longer dare venture. The first reaction of those of us sitting in well-furnished living rooms in richer nations may well be to switch the television off whenever we hear of misery in distant lands. Why should we care? After all, Afghanistan and northern Mali are nowhere most well-off Westerners would drop by on holiday. Not now, at any rate. It's easy to forget that Timbuktu was once firmly on the hippie trail. In any case, our economies do not hinge on what happens in these places. They remain comfortably out of reach, remote, and rarely any of our business. How are these economies out of reach under globalization. Has globalization not had an impact on them yet? Well, certainly these parts of the world are as globalized as any other part of the world today. And I think there's a geographical fallacy in a lot of the thinking and how we imagine these sites, how they are presented to us in the media as ungoverned spaces, as dangerous sites without any control, without connection to the mainstream of globalization. If you look at the Sahara Desert, it's full of traders, cross-border trade going on all the time. Uh, Timbuktu, as I say in my book, was only a few years ago on, on the overland budget flight uh, map for, from, from Europe. There were tourists coming into desert blues festivals in the desert and so on. These parts of the world are certainly not disconnected. Uh, but the problem right now is partly that we're imagining them as this sort of uh, outside source of danger precisely because they are so ungoverned, precisely because they are not reached by our modern economies, which is which is not true. But on the other hand, there's also a possibility here for various kinds of actors in framing these areas as remote and dangerous, both for insurgents, jihadists, other groups uh, who want to stage their 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 uh, uprisings or have you in these areas, but also for interveners, for counter-terror forces, border security operations, even the media, you see in these areas a stage for a certain kind uh, of of uh, of uh, uh, spectacle, if you will, of of danger and fear. 
You explain how your book pivots around the region known as the Sahel, the area from Senegal on the west to Sudan on the east, that is the transition zone between the Sahara to the north and the savannas of Africa to its south. What is it about this region that it apparently attracts all the fears of the West, or at least the perception that it contains all the West fears? Why did the Sahel end up being the sum of all the West fears? Or or is it not a matter of attraction or pull factors, but the people that do live in these no-go zones are pushed into those areas? Well, I mean, again, there's a quite a long story to this, uh, going back to, to colonial times. But I think in the past few years, really, we've seen how the Sahel, certainly in Europe, uh, is becoming the stage for all these security interventions, military intervention. Uh, and a lot of this is to do with migration. The fear of more migrants and refugees arriving onto European shores. After 2015, it's been a huge rollout of efforts that were already present in early years. And I wrote about this in my last book, Border Security. Uh, externalized in the language to these states, that is to make the African states crack down on migration already on their soil. This is not a new thing, but it's been stepped up massively through conditional aid, through all sorts of uh, financing programs and pressure on states, especially in the Sahel region, I would say, to collaborate in these controls. So migration is a major obsession, if you will, politically of uh, Europe in particular. We then have counter-terror. And we've seen since 2012 when uh, an insurgency, a separatist insurgency was followed by a jihadist takeover of northern Mali, where I did some of my fieldwork. We've seen uh, peacekeeping operations come in. We've seen counter-terror operations by France and a more long-running one by the United States as well, counter-terror collaboration, rather, with states in the region uh, taking shape. Uh, so we see on all these fronts, more and more emphasis is put on controlling what are seen as threats that are emanating from this region. And the problem here is really that Europe and Western powers, including the United States, are not really acknowledging their own role in these problems. Uh, whether that's the conflict in Mali, which had its origins to a large extent, well, partly in, in, in uh, local grievances, but also in... Uh, uh, the military campaign by NATO in Libya, which unsettled Gaddafi, who was a big patron of the countries in the Sahel, which uh, made uh, Tuareg, northern Malian fighters, come back into Mali uh, and stir up this insurgency and so on. And similarly with migration and the chaos generated in Libya by this intervention, for instance, all of these things, we can trace them to a large extent back to the very Western powers who are now seeing these regions as inherently dangerous and in need of uh, control and containment. You write that this idea that these no-go zones are on the global margins, quote, is a fallacy. In fact, remote zones of insecurity are becoming central to our new world disorder. What is revealed to us or what should be revealed to us about what you call our new world disorder when we understand no-go zones as being central to that disorder? What does it show us about how the new world disorder works? Partly to me is to do with the, the politics of fear today that I see very much domestically in our politics. We know about Trump's uh, uh, doom-mongering around this supposed caravan and the building of the wall. We need to repeat that yet again, but we have a similar thing going on in Europe 
around migration, around terror and so on. Uh, the politics of fear are extremely potent, and a lot of its potency stems from this geographical imagination of there being this dangerous area out there inhabited by people who 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 uh, pose a potential threat to us. And we need to intervene to contain and control that threat outside our borders so it doesn't reach us through remote interventions of various kinds, drone attacks, counter-terror forces, proxy warfare, but also border security. So really what goes on in these far-flung places projects right into the heart of our politics. And let me just say that those on the other side of the equation, they know this very well. Jihadists, insurgents, they know the power of the violence they stage, the horrific atrocities they may stage in such remote zones. They know that it will be picked up on social media, on television, 24-hour news, be projected right into the living rooms in those richer intervening nations. There's a circuit here, there's a circuit uh, connecting this far-flung part right into the heart of our politics uh, that is that is not acknowledged enough. On the other hand, I think these zones and the types of intervention that are being staged in them uh, really re reveals a wider geopolitical shift in the world today. Uh, it's easy to think that when we see a map of all these counter-terror interventions, border security, all the rest of it, that Western powers have it under control. They are yet again extending their dominance as in earlier historical times. But in fact, to me, this focus on danger, fear, risk in this part of the world, the wrong-headed way in which these interventions are carried out and keep leading to a proliferation of the dangers, to me that indicates also loosening of, con of control, uh, a, a loosening of the hold on some of these formerly colonized parts of the world by Western powers, as other actors step in with a different kind of project, China not least, uh, and, and stepping in and in a way uh, gaining a different kind of economic dominance over these parts of the world. So a lot is going on here. If you look at the Timbuktu of the world map, if you will, that takes us right into the heart of our political and economic shifts in the world today. So let's talk about fear for a while. You write Western victims of terror attacks in Africa are in fact few and far between. Only 15 of the 1,005 Americans killed in terrorist attacks worldwide between 2004 and 2013 took place on the continent, for instance. Relative to other threats, traffic accidents, crime, illness, both at home and abroad, the risk looks even smaller. Then you cite a terror expert pointing out approximately 13,472 murders occurred in the United States during 2014, yet the 24 private citizens' deaths worldwide by terrorism in 2014 got a great deal more media attention. To you, what explains why those 20, 24 deaths are prioritized over the 13,472? Is it simply a matter of the sensational nature of terror, terror acts? Is it the fact that they are so rare that draws the media attention and prioritizes it, while the normalcy of homicides in the United States is, by definition, not sensational or extraordinary in any way? Well, I mean, this is, this is uh, quite understandable on some level that when we have these spectacular terror attacks with the horrific violence they involve uh, against civilians for political ends, that this will garner media attention. I think and I hope that some media outlets, certainly not all, but some of them are becoming a little bit more aware now that the way in which the coverage, the rolling coverage of attacks, uh, their focus on the perpetrators uh, actually 
uh, incentivizes, if you will, even more attacks of that kind because the oxygen is precisely what these uh, uh, criminals uh, 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 and murderers seek. But that's that's uh, the very uh, raison d'etre, the very reason for these for these attacks, and it has been since this kind of terrorist violence was first staged historically in the 19th century in Europe, what was called the propaganda of the deed. This was the idea behind these attacks, that you trigger a huge, uh, huge political attention and a huge official response that in turn may draw further supporters to your cause and, and highlight it even more, seeking more and more oxygen uh, for, for this kind of violence. So this is a circuit we've been in for, for some years now. Uh, the high visibility of this kind of attacks, the way it's been covered, and of course the way now it travels across social media, uh, feeds back into the cycle of more violence, and so do uh, the often, sadly, the counter-terror interventions and the war on terror that's been uh, staged to, to deal with this. As, we, as I've said, we've seen a proliferation of attacks, a proliferation of militant groups and fighters in such groups the past uh, uh, 15, 20 years. You write, we in the rich, safe world withdraw from danger zones. We are paradoxically tied more closely than ever to these new no-zone areas, no-go areas, which uh, exercise a peculiar power over us in our imaginations. Insurgents, knowing this, may then tap into our deepest fears as they reconnect the danger zone to our wired world with ease. A pocket knife and a webcam are now all that is needed to shake the White House, or the say, out of their complacency. So, do terrorists exploit our biases, misconceptions, and stereotypes, and our media and government to frighten us? Are our own biases, our own fears, our greatest vulnerability? Well, there's nothing to fear, but fear itself is is that famous dictum. And uh, in a way, uh, that's true here, that the fears are clearly uh, fueling themselves, if you will, with some help from these other actors, enemies of different kind, external violent actors. Uh, and we see to some extent uh, also uh, prophecies sort of self-fulfilling in this part of the world. Intervention is being staged here, and we see this in the Sahara Desert, where the U.S. quite soon after uh, 9-11, the Iraq war and so on, started to roll out counter-terror collaborations with countries in uh, this part of the world, in the Sahel, the Sahara region. Uh, We saw already then that that attracted a certain attention from insurgent groups. And then we start to see this circuit again, this escalation of violence, escalation of danger and fear uh, in these parts of the world. So I think we need to break this. I think we need to replace this uh, uh, dangerous spiral with a positive reconnection with this poorer part of the world. There's a lot of potential. If we look at a country again like Mali, which I know quite well in West Africa, already we saw a few years ago the potential for economic collaboration, for tourism, uh, a country with an extremely rich culture and heritage, a lot going for it, a lot of young, ambitious people in it. There are completely different ways of engaging with that country instead of simply fearing uh, whatever may come out of it, whether in the form of terror, contraband, drugs, migration, as now tends to be the case, sadly. What does it say about our politicians or and or our media outlets who stoke fear, even rely on it for votes or ratings? Are they, are they actually putting their audience at greater risk by promoting their unfounded biases? 
Well, I wouldn't uh, comment necessarily on greater risk, but I think the, the, the big risk is this escalation that's going on all the time and this reinforcement of a sense of a division between us and them. Those of us in the safe, if you will, green zones of the world and those on the other side in the danger zones, the red zones. Uh, politically, it's very risky. I think it creates an extremely dangerous and negative relationship between those richer Western powers, donor states, intervening states, who can certainly find completely different ways of engaging with these poorer, uh, often crisis-hit part of the world that are not framed around risk, danger, security, as we're seeing today. One of the biggest risks in this relation uh, comes back to how actors on the other side deal with this framing, deal with this kind of relationship. They know exactly what buttons to push in order to uh, extract further, if you will, political, economic concessions from Western powers, Western donors, interveners. So let's take an example such as Gaddafi in Libya, who for many years uh, warned Europe that it would face uh, extreme high levels of migration unless he received all sorts of uh, um, uh, favors, essentially. Uh, Five billion euros, he said at one point, was what he needed in order to avoid Europe turning black. We've seen that similar type of threat now being replicated by many other states in the region, uh, from Niger and Mali in West Africa to, to, to other countries further east, saying, well, unless you fund us, unless you, uh, you engage with us, as, as, uh, legitimize us as political actors, we're going to ensure that this threat is going to keep on growing, whether that's migration or something else. As Mali's president said quite recently, Mali is a dam, and if it breaks, Europe will be flooded. So this kind of relationship that's being constructed just tends to escalate and worsen the situation, endangering uh, a future relationship, but also uh, really uh, strengthening or, or, or worsening the risk for further chaos at the borders, in this case, or chaos of other kinds. You write that your book is the dark tale of global distancing and endangerment. For a start, the relationship by remote control forged between powerful interveners and crisis-hit areas of the planet is a tragic case of failed connectivity. As new technologies are supposed to be bringing geographical divides as global risks expand and as the climate is heating up, peoples and governments need to be more connected, not less. So why... Did that happen? Why did the connectivity that we had hoped that would happen with the internet? Why did that cultural connectivity not happen? Did when the West connected with the rest of the world, did the West realize the damage we had wrought? It had been revealed to them, and all of the sudden we wanted to withdraw from the world and disconnect. Well, I guess it's difficult to entangle all the different strands. What's going on here? Partly, it's down to what we've been talking about is politics of fear taking hold, not least after 9-11, but also after the Cold War, when really uh, the United States was left without a big global geopolitical enemy, essentially, and suddenly there was a need to go out, or as some neoconservatives said at the time, in search for monsters to destroy. It was an active search in the 1990s for that big geopolitical threat, and eventually it was found in these faraway Basis in what one geostrategist Thomas Barnes called the worldwide gap, the areas supposedly disconnected from globalization that are therefore dangerous. So there was a lot of thinking 
a lot of punditry, a lot of strategizing going on in finding and defining and placing this threat in certain parts of the map. There's an active strategy to what's, to what's going on there. The other thing, I guess, is that societies have become very risk-averse. The sociologist Ulrich Beck talks about a risk society, where generations in modernity are more and more risks and anxieties attached to those risks. It's something we see in our daily lives. I know as an academic now, if I go to a conference somewhere in Europe, I have to fill in a travel risk form saying I'm going to take care of my valuables and not go to a dangerous part of, say, Copenhagen or somewhere. There are absolutely no threats to speak of, but now the risk aversion is so high that we are retreating more and more into our safe zones. That's another trend feeding into that. But then finally, in terms of connectivity, in fact, like we have already said, these areas are not disconnected, quite the opposite. Um, and they are certainly connected as well in a very negative sense to these security intervention and through insurgencies of different kinds. Uh, we now have a capability to go in with remote controls of different kinds, drone warfare, tracking people over time, uh, building up a picture of enemy networks, satellite surveillance, also border areas of migratory movements, uh, besides relying on local eyes and ears and, and, and security forces in these countries. All of these remote controls are actually enabled by this new connectivity. So distance is enabled in this sense by our connectivity. We are speaking with anthropologist Ruben Anderson, author of No Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our Politics. You can find out more about Ruben at rubenanderson.com. That's Anderson with two S's. So what happens when the freedom to travel is lost? I, by the way, I found it hilarious when you were talking about how the neighborhoods near Stockholm where you were in Oxford, they were actually no, they were actually being labeled as no-go zones when you say that they're perfectly safe places. So what happens when the freedom to travel is lost? And how does society losing its freedom to travel affect an individual who chooses not to travel or cannot travel for whatever reason? How does society losing the freedom to travel affect everyone mm-hmm. within that society? Well, I guess as, uh, as the title says, a no-go world in the making here on, on both sides of the global divide, if you will. For those on the other side, uh, migrant refugees are trying to arrive into safety or into a place where they have better possibilities of building a meaningful uh, life for themselves are increasingly facing these dangerous zones, these no-go zones head-on, and they're also facing blockage, border walls going up, surveillance systems blocking and tracking their path. No-go, do not enter. There's a no-go world in that sense for people who are trying to reach into these green zones of the world, if you will. But those of us who inhabit these richer parts of the planet, in the West not least, we are also increasingly facing these restrictions, and sometimes these are just ridiculous invocations of danger zones that don't exist. We've seen this in debate around no-go zones in Europe, spurious no-go zones that that uh, someone's cooked up in their imagination. We then have also, of course, real uh, danger zones, areas that are uh, uh, some level uh, uh, dangerous to enter, but often that danger is politically exaggerated. Often, again, that risk aversion or wanting to blank out certain parts of the world for the traveler um, is, 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 is really constraining us in all sorts of ways, not just as tourists, as visitors, but as academic researchers, as journalists often can't enter these areas, or they rely on free media organizations, rely on freelancers to even have a 
understanding what happens in Afghanistan, in, in Syria, in the Sahel. Uh, for interveners themselves, peacekeepers bunkering up, aid workers who are drawing from the front lines, relying on, on local workers who are put in, in, in harm's way. So all sorts of ways in which this limits our understanding of what goes on out in the world, which in turn tends to reinforce our fears. The more we bunker up, uh, the more we withdraw into our gated community, if we will, uh, the more, in a sense, we fear what's on the other side. And this is a tragedy, and we, I think we need to start breaking that somehow and start to take some risks politically in how we engage with these far-flung parts of the world. So how much does this world of no-go zones, how much does this create a fertile environment for another 9-11-like terror attack? And I mean by that, the kind where after it happens, people, whoever the victims are, whatever nation is a victim of the terror attack, are saying we were completely surprised, we had no idea, this is a, a total shock. How much more do no-go zones lead to the possibility of complete surprise by a terrorist attack because of our lack of knowledge of what's happening in other parts of the world? To some extent, I mean, there is a cynical function to these no-go zones, this mapping of the world into zones of danger and safety, and these remote interventions in these areas. Uh, they tend to generate more danger and chaos. We've already talked about the rising terror attacks and also we're seeing growing chaos and migratory routes, other phenomena that Western powers especially are trying to deal with remotely in these areas, but are keep on proliferating and getting worse. But at the same time, it's a cynical function here in that often, and we've seen this over time, the risks have been quite successfully displaced in these areas to contain away from core Western countries and their territories. We've seen that after 9-11. We, we haven't had, we have had uh, terror attacks in the United States, but certainly if you look at that in relation to the rest of the world, particularly these poorer countries on the front lines, that's where we see most of these victims of terror attacks uh, 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 occurring. Uh, and we see that displacement, that containment and the creation of buffer zones and containment zones around the world in a way working to shield those powers that instigate and start intervention to some extent from the fallout, at least in the short term. But I think politically and in the longer term, we're clearly not uh, uh, solving anything here. And a very different approach is needed to start to get to grips with this a dangerous spiral uh, we're in uh, that keeps generating more fear and more danger in a sense through interventions that are supposed uh, to to stop this from happening on paper. So why, as you write, uh, foreign ministries are exaggerating these problems, these exaggerating the dangers in the world. Why? What's the benefit in creating today's world of no-go zones? Well, the benefits are political to some extent, uh, in drawing up a map where we can somehow project dangers and fears outside our territory and say, look, we don't have uh, any anything to do with these problems. We have nothing to do with the problem of terrorism, the problem of instability in Libya, the problem of quagmire in Afghanistan, say, uh, the problem of worldwide displacement owing to conflicts that often Western powers have had a major part in creating, where we can sort of project all that onto other territories and onto other peoples, away from our own territories. So this is a political function in that, it's a psychological function in drawing these stark divides across the world. There's often, of course, also that shorter-term 
gain from stirring up fear because that threat may reach our borders and then we have to uh, uh, build that wall or what, what have you. So there's also that kind of mobilizing of fear around these areas and mobilizing of fear around the threat reaching our shores that we see deployed quite effectively on both sides of the Atlantic, sadly. How do, uh, well, first of all, do we overly obsess on risk leading us to fear? And how can we undo that obsession? Because I would think that the idea of focusing on risk is trying to be responsible and safe and secure. So how do we overcome that obsession with risk that leads to fear? Well, partly I think we can uh, simply take a long and hard look at what's going on in these kinds of intervention and these border operations. Actually, some proper auditing of what's happening here with taxpayer money, where is it going? What is it generating? And what we'll see in those operations, we're actually generating more risks. It's just often we are able to transfer that risk over to someone else, to to poorer countries participating in these interventions, whether that is Mexico in the war on drugs or in controlling migration, or whether that's countries in, in uh, the sub-Saharan Sahel doing something similar for Europe. Uh, so we can start to identify where are these risks traveling to, who has to deal with them, and then maybe realize that we can actually organize this in a very different way. And some of that movement has happened actually already. If you look at climate change, if you look at the war on drugs, uh, we've had a mobilization by certain actors. They look, no more, we are facing these risks. We say, countries in Latin America saying we no longer uh, want to play our part in this militarized war on drugs we, because it's too risky for us. We need to find another approach. And so the momentum starts there, in a way, at the other end. That's one way of doing it. Another way is to start really building another narrative of the world. I think we've lost a lot of the hope that attached, say, to the moment of decolonization some uh, some decades ago. It's actually a hope of reuniting the world, a hope of liberty, of freedom, of, of moving ahead somehow together. Uh, and right now, instead, we're seeing increasing division and fear defining our politics. We can find another political narrative uh, that that reframes that relationship. I think we may well be on our way, but it's, it's clearly not an easy task. And perhaps the smaller steps of trying to break out of our of our bunkers and our borders, if you will, taking some risks in the short run will will be the best the best way we can at least move slowly forward on that path. How much does our global economy's dependence upon risk lead to our sense of fear? Does financialization and the very risk and risk-oriented and uh, speculative market that we have with commodification are these actions of the market? What's making us so afraid? Well, it's kind of a contradiction here in the world economy as well. On the one hand, we're embracing risk-taking, and and, and we see that in speculative uh, finance, of course, in the whole financial crisis. And on the other hand, we are more and more risk-averse in our societies, and some of that, I think, is reflected in the warfare and these kinds of interventions in these global danger zones, if you will. At the same time, uh, these powerful countries want to intervene there, they want to go in and control these distant dangers, but often fearful, too fearful to actually fully enter, and so they stay on the sidelines. Uh, so we see a lot of this ambivalence around risk play out in these far-flung parts of the world. And again, that's 
part of why I think of them as being central to our new world disorder and to the state of our of our uh, of our global economies and, and, and politics to some extent. But again, just to return to, to what I said before, that there are clear gains to be had for certain politicians, interveners, also uh, those countries collaborating in controls, in stoking the threat, or at least uh, wanting to keep these operations going. Uh, risk is not just something negative, it's also a source of gains for many actors. And we see that very clearly from the Sahara-Sahara belt to the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands, I would say. You write that the normal, this normalized state of security is itself abnormal to the point of being pathological. What happens to society when a pursuit of securitization becomes patholo- pathological? And isn't being obsessed with security, again, the safest thing to do? Doesn't that obsession keep us safe, as Vice President Dick Cheney would argue? <laughs> well, it's a good example of the, of the uh, marketing of Humvees and these sort of huge militarized vehicles in the post 9-11 years. The idea being that once we have that huge vehicle going down the road, that's going to keep us safe from all these threats without realizing that actually by using that huge vehicle, we are putting others in danger and we might put ourselves in danger. They are bulky, they are not suitable for traveling in town and so on. So actually by wanting to find this fantastical, magical solution to our anxiety, we're actually generating more problems, more risks, more dangers. And I think we see something similar happening with border walls, with bunkers going up in in field interventions and so on. Uh, so there's clearly uh, a lot to be said for a different approach to risk of trying to somehow find another way of reaching out beyond beyond the boundaries uh, and uh, trying to find another relationship here than the one we're currently seeing. One last question for you, Ruben. We have been speaking with anthropologist Ruben Anderson, author of No Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our Politics. Ruben is an anthropologist and associate professor in the Department of International Development at the University of Oxford. He's the author of Illegality Incorporated, Clandestine Migration and the Business of Bordering Europe. And the winner, that's the winner of the uh, BBC Thinking Out Loud Award or Thinking Aloud Award for Ethnography in 2015. We also named it one of the best books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2015. You can hear that interview with Ruben at thisishell.com. And you can find out more about Ruben at rubenanderson.com. That's Anderson with two S's. One last question for you, Ruben. And it's, as always, the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate mm-hmm. to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. When I was reading uh, your book and thinking about the way that the media and the government have created so much distance between us and these no-go zones, even though we're very connected with them, how much they work to disconnect us. Does the West, do we not know why they hate us because we are purposely misinformed or uninformed about the areas they're from? Well, a lot of the people, and this is where we really need to go, to understand the people who live in these parts of the world, listen to their perspectives. And if we do so, we'll hear a very different story coming out, a story of clear Western involvement in many of these parts of the world, whether we talk about the war on drugs and, and the criminality affecting Central America and Mexico today, or whether we talk about the jihadism and violence spreading across the Sahel, the Sahara, chaos in Libya, uh, migration patterns and displacement. People in these parts of the world, they would often squarely put the blame uh, uh, back in 
in Western quarters say, well, you are actually the problem. This is how one military officer in Mali told me uh, what was happening in his country. The conflict there, the chaos there was down to the NATO intervention in Libya and this cascading effect that came from that. Um, of course, there are also local reasons for what's happening there. We need to understand all of that. But I think the first step is, again, to reach out, to listen to those voices who often have a much better understanding of how these dangers that interventions are trying to to deal with are not geographically bound, they are systemic. And we need to deal with them, understand them on a systemic global level if we want to have any chance at all of tackling them uh, together. Ruben, it is always a pleasure talking to you. You can Right now, everybody can go to thisishell.com and you can listen to our interview that we did with Ruben back in 2015 about his book, Illegality Incorporated, Clandestine Migration and the Business of Bordering Europe. And it is, if you read these, if you listen to these two interviews in two parts or read the two books, it makes a fantastic series. Ruben is an anthropologist and associate professor in the Department of International Development at the University of Oxford. And you can find out more about Ruben at Ruben Anderson com. That's with two S's. And when this book comes out in paperback, if you have new information or when you have new writing out of any sort, Ruben, please, please keep in touch with us because it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. It's been great to be on. All right. Take care, Ruben. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. The U.S. Census has a long and sordid history of being racist and very effective at implementing racism. In fact, The U.S. is the birthplace of the computerized institutionalization of racism. Hell, thanks to IBM, even the Nazis used our census system to effectively execute their Holocaust. So yes, President Trump's proposed citizenship question on the U.S. census is racist and will hurt democracy by underrepresenting people who are not white. But... Racism is nothing new with the U.S. Census. We'll talk all about our racist census system when we have the return of investigative journalist Yasha Levin, who posted the Medium.com article, The Racist and High-Tech Origins of America's Modern Census, How the Tools Built to Conduct the U.S. Census Fueled Nazi Genocide Internment and State-Sanctioned Racism and Helped Usher in the Digital Age. Yasha is author of Surveillance Valley, the secret military history of the Internet. You can find out more about Yasha's book at surveillancevalley.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1886, 133 years ago, after four days of unrest in Chicago, as thousands of the city's workers went on strike demanding improved conditions in an eight-hour workday, an initially peaceful evening demonstration at the city's Haymarket Square suddenly turned violent after police moved to silence a speaker and ordered the crowd to disperse. There's one thing police are not going to let you do. It's organize and rally against their corporate overlords. You'd figure the police would be there to serve and protect the rights of the workers, but unfortunately that's not who gets served and protected in the U.S. The only time workers get served and protected is when we're served with a warrant put into protective custody. A bomb thrown by an unknown person exploded, killing several people, and the police responded by firing into the crowd because 
That's what the bosses expect from their muscle. The chaos resulted in the deaths of seven police and at least four demonstrators, perhaps as many as seven, as well as injuries to unknown dozens of demonstrators, many of whom were afraid to seek medical help. The bombing was soon blamed on anarchists, eight of whom were convicted of conspiracy. Four of them would later be hanged, while two others received life sentences, and another committed suicide in prison by detonating a blasting cap in his mouth and blowing off his face. That is the last way on my list of ways in which I will be killing myself. That's the last one. That's the last on the list. Amid growing international outrage over what many perceived as an unfair trial, Illinois Governor John Peter Altgeld pardoned three other defendants. The identity of the actual bomb thrower was never determined. And the housing project was then named after Altgeld on Chicago's far south side. Although rumors have always persisted that it was, in fact, a cop or agent provocateur of some sort who threw the bomb, which could explain why the bomber never got caught, the whole event stands as a stark reminder of who, what, and why the police serve and protect. Well, they always side with the boss over the worker. In Rotten History, 1949, 70 years ago, today, all but... Two members of a professional soccer team from the Italian city of Torino were killed when their airplane crashed into a church basilica on a hill near that city as they returned on a foggy evening from a game in Portugal, proving God hates the Torino soccer team. My understanding is she's a big fan of Torino's crosstown rival, Uventus. The Torino team was popularly known as Grand Torino, not to be confused with Uventus. Torino has been on a roll, had been on a roll, having won five championships since the end of World War II, including League and League Cup play. Their two surviving players were not on the plane. They had remained at home, one due to injury. The crash also took the lives of coaching staff and journalists aboard the aircraft, as well as the plane's crew. 31 people died in all. No word if God was aware of the recent gambling scandal that relegated Juventus a few years ago, although rumors have it she lost a lot of money on that scandal and is now an AC Roma fan. In Rotten History, 1970, 49 years ago, four unarmed college students were shot dead when National Guard troops opened fire on a crowd of 3,000 demonstrators on the campus of Kent State University. That is bizarre. It's on the anniversary of Haymarket. Wow. I, I, and I remember, I believe, like, they changed their name from Kent State to Kent University a little while ago, thinking it would end the association with the shooting, although I have no idea why an institution of higher learning would be so interested in erasing history. That kind of doesn't really make sense to me. Anyway, uh, the students were protesting the U.S. expansion of the Vietnam War into the neutral neighboring state of Cambodia, ordered a few days earlier by President Richard Nixon. 28 guardsmen fired more than 60 shots within 13 seconds. Besides the four dead, nine other students were wounded, including one who was permanently paralyzed. In a famous news uh, photograph on the event, a 14-year-old runaway named Mary Ann Vecchio, who happened by chance to be visiting the campus, was seen kneeling and crying over the body of murdered student Jeffrey Miller. Amid the media frenzy that followed, Florida governor... Claude Kirk called Vecchio a communist, and she received a barrage of hate mail and harassment that she later said destroyed her life, because that's what fascists do. They cowardly attack the victimized and vulnerable as those who are the only people the fascists are brave enough to confront. The Cambodian invasion, urged on by 
National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, had been opposed by both Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State William Rogers and Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird. It was later credited with destabilizing that country and enabling the rise of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, who were later held responsible for the deaths of between one and three million people. So for those of you keeping score at home, fascists were responsible for the deaths of one to three million people. And that's Rotten History. Alex, what have you been up to on social media? On Instagram, I'm trying to figure out how to use my new dog to get clicks. Uh, but first, I got to figure out if calling my dog Lady is problematic in 2019. What do you think? Is that the name of the dog? Yeah. Well, I don't know. It depends on how I'm going to get in trouble with anyone. Uh, I have met many dogs named Lady, and they're usually owned by old ladies. Uh, so I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not too sure. Can you use the L word as an M? Uh, Jeffy said I could. Okay. So uh, direct your complaints uh, to Jeffy if, if that was a bad choice on my part to name the dog that. What was the dog's name when you adopted it? Bethany. That's terrible. That's, Bethany is way more problematic. That's terrible. Um, on Twitter, sorry, any Bethany's out there listening. Uh, my dog's lady, not Bethany now. Uh, on Twitter, I think I shared a positive comment, but it was in Portuguese about our Brian Muir interview on Brazil and corporate hegemony. Um, and also I recommended a big Jasper Burns essay uh, called Between the Devil and the New Green Deal for Commune Magazine. I'm trying to get him on the show to talk about the piece. And uh, actually, Thea Rio Francos, who just heard two hours ago, shared a critique of that piece that I hope we can also get him to respond to because uh, she makes some really great points about that whole piece. Um, and on Facebook, I uh, shared a very good current affairs uh, piece by Nathan J. Robinson, past guest, on universal suffrage called... But do you want Dylan Roof to have rights? You know, my, I am so hating that argument. And the other argument that I'm really hating right now is, uh, you know, if we get rid of student loans, it's, not, it's unfair to these people who uh, paid back their student loans. Yeah, should we all still be in ho- riding on horses because it's unfair to the people who were riding on horses that they didn't have cars? The, the, the arguments are so dumb that yes, I've been nuts. hearing over and over and over again, especially by liberal centrists. Uh, also, I shared a FAIR.org analysis uh, titled, 0% of elite commentators oppose regime change in Venezuela. Huh. Zero. <laughs> Damn. Uh, and finally, look, Chuck and I spend a lot of time producing, broadcasting, and promoting four-plus hours of in-depth historical and political analysis, work that isn't being done anywhere else on the radio. And I post it all on Facebook, and I can see how many clicks each post gets. So when the number one shared and commented article for the week is just about how lawns are bad, (laughs) I'm starting to think the problem is with you guys, not me and Chuck. Come on, everybody. You can do better. And also, please like and subscribe to my new anti-lawn podcast, No Sods, No Masters, on iTunes. (laughs) Dude, I... uh... Yeah, I love that article, and I love to remind everybody, especially at this time of year, right before, you know, people start watering their lawns and all that crap. For God's sake. What a waste. Lawns are stupid. It's time for listener feedback. Our first email to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com is from Danny. Hello, Chuck and Alex. My name is Danny Haifong. I have been a weekly contributor to Black Agenda Report since 2014-2015. Glenn Ford often shares your programming, and I have learned much from it over the course of the years. There are too few voices in the media willing to cover and speak the truth amid this hell of a political and media environment in the U.S., I have recently co-authored a book titled American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. I was wondering if you would be interested in doing an interview about it on your wonderful show. 
I will send you a PDF. For now, here's the brief description from the publisher's website. The afterword was written by Glenn Ford and the foreword by Ajamu Baraka. Thank you for your consideration. Danny, Danny, you had me at Weekly Contributor, Black Agenda Report. Anybody who is a colleague of Glenn Ford immediately gets a free pass to be on our show, as Glenn and Black Agenda Report have been, I'm, I'm positive, our biggest supporters over the history of our show. So, yes, Danny, Alex will get in touch with you. In fact, he did get in touch with you and... Alex, you did confirm him for one of our uh, live streaming podcasts this week, correct? Oh, I think Alex is on the phone. Uh, so, yes, Danny Haifang will be on one of our shows either on uh, Wednesday. I think it's the Wednesday at 7 p.m. Chicago time. But you, you can only hear that live by subscribing to Patreon, patreon.com slash thisishell. However, we will be replaying it, the live recording, on next Saturday's show when I am not here. George sent an email to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Don't forget to send that copy of Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. I've promised to give it to my nephew who is considering joining the Chicago Police Force after I'm done reading it. All the best, George. George, it is in the mail. It got in the mail this week, and anyone and everyone who knows someone that is considering joining the Chicago Police Department, I strongly suggest you do the same as George and get the potential recruit a copy of Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. I'm sure they will find it hilarious. Then this week, uh, George emailed us again, but this time it was about last week's guests, Eileen Applebaum and Barbara Batt, discussing private equity's impact on bricks-and-mortar retail stores. George writes, Chuck, when you... Uh, do the interview on private equity killing retail, don't forget to ask plenty of questions about what was once one of Chicago's largest employers, Sears. Eddie Lampert has drained the company. I know this is a big read, but here's the lawsuit against Eddie. Steve Mnuchin and others describing their history of self-dealing. Have fun. Thanks, George. So sorry, George. Just wanted to say that we didn't get around to that Sears story because what they were, what their writing was focusing on was grocery stores. So sorry about not touching on Sears, although that is a fascinating story, especially with the connection to Steve Mnuchin. We will get back to listener feedback in just a bit. This week's question from hell is, what's on the other side of the wall? What's on the other side of the wall? All replies right on air following our next guest. This week's winner gets the book that we were just discussing Anthropologist Reuben Anderson's book, No-Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our Politics. Again, the question from is, what's on the other side of the wall? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us at on Twitter at thisishellradio. Listen following Yash11 and uh, find out if you've won. If you are an artist or you know an artist that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our anniversary party on July 27th, email me your or their art, and we will definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 show. Again, email me your art or someone someone's art you like to chuck at thisishell.com, and we will consider their submission for our annual This Is Art show. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well. So if you are an artist or a musician or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our anniversary anniversary party, our listener appreciation party. This year it carries on July 27th. Again, email me 
at Chuck at thisishell.com. And we've got some even bigger news to share about our anniversary and listener appreciation party coming up. So stay tuned in for that. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the U.S. Census is a history of enforcing racism that dates back to its very beginning, long before President Trump's proposed citizenship question. Joe Biden is freaking awful, and there's no way his disorganized campaign and racist record will land him the Democratic President's presidential, the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. Is there? During the moment of truth, Jeff catalogs evidence of our decreasing intelligence, or at least his. We'll also have what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast, more listener feedback. Uh, we'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow hacker, psychedelic warlord, who you may know as Beta O'Rourke. Of course, the question from hell, we want to thank some listeners for sharing the show and some for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell, including our 7 p.m. Wednesday and Thursday live streaming shows only for Patreon subscribers. We will be replaying those shows the following Saturday, but you can only hear them live streaming if you are a subscriber of patreon.com slash this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio. This is hell. President Trump's attempt to racialize the U.S. Census by advocating for a citizenship question to be on next year's survey is, sadly, Nothing new. In fact, the U.S. is the home of racializing census and efficiently computerizing institutionalized racism. The U.S. and their partners at IBM are so good at making a racist census data collection system that the Nazis used it. Here to guide us through the racist history of the U.S. census, returning to This Is Hell investigative journalist Yasha Levin posted the Medium.com article, The Racist and High-Tech Origins of America's modern census. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Yasha. Uh, thank you for having me. Yasha is the author of Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. Find out more about Yasha's book at surveillancevalley.com. This is Yasha's fifth appearance on This Is Hell. He was on most recently in December, discussed his movie Pistachio Wars, Killing California for a Snack Food. And just a couple of things I want to mention real quick. First of all, his book, Surveillance Valley, is exceptional so you must read that book and secondly his uh, movie pistachio wars was very enlightening so i really appreciate all the work that you're doing yasha and it's always a pleasure to have you on the show sir uh thank you for having me uh the movie isn't out yet it's still in process of being of being made so I... um in case people want to go and look it's they're not going to find much uh, except the trailer right that's the only so part i, I saw to... but that was it looked yeah. great man it looks really great so you're thank still you. so you're thank still you. working on funding it do you still have a GoFundMe or anything like that going for it uh no i mean it's we 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 raised enough uh, for uh, post production and so we're just you know slogging through the the documentary film so we you know we're moving through the footage we're editing it you know trying to get 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 from point a uh, from from the beginning to the end you know it's it's kind of a it's a it's a whole journey uh to make these things um so we're we're slowly but we're grinding away hopefully by the end of the year oh that's fantastic yeah. uh when yeah. that comes out make sure that you're back on the show cuz i really will want to talk about it with you because uh-huh. the it, the trailer looks really fantastic that would be amazing thank you uh you write the us census specifically mandated by the constitution to take place every 10 years is back in the news not only because the next count kicks off in 2020 but because as it often has in the past, the census is a political flashpoint with inevitable racial overtones. 
uh, as it has often been in the past. Is the current politicization of the census then nothing new? Is this not that unique? And how do you feel about the media coverage that makes it sound like this is unprecedented? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of media coverage these days is uh, pretty ahistorical and uh, sort of built on outrage. And uh, and so everything is unprecedented. Everything is the, the worst it possibly you know, has been in history. But look, the census has always been a political weapon or a political instrument, let's put it this way. Um, primarily because it was written to be that, you know, in, in the Constitution. Uh, when the Constitution was hammered out, the census was, um, um, you know, an instrument that was going to be used to um, apportion uh, political uh, power among uh, America's states, right? So every, st- you know, the Senate has two senators per state, so it doesn't matter how many people live in each state, Right. But the House of Representatives, the number of representatives that each state gets to field in Washington, D.C., um, is determined by the population right, of, of, that, of, of a state. And so the census, uh, one of the primary functions of the census, other than also um, initially being used to uh, collect tax revenue from states uh, in, uh, early in, in uh, sort of uh, American history, um, the, main, the main thing that the census was used for is to you know, figure out how many people live in a state, so then... Um, a state gets the right kind of political representation. And of course, the number of representatives that each state gets to field, you know, is a very political question, right? Because each state wants to have as much power as possible, right? Uh, and so um, the census was a political instrument, and it was, it was also racialized from the very beginning because um, um, the northern states uh, wanted to um, prevent uh, southern states uh, that had slavery from counting slaves as part of their population, right? Um, and, and so they wanted so because they didn't want it because they wanted to have uh, they thought they thought that it was unfair, um, and so immediately there was a compromise reached uh, between um, southern and northern states, uh, where um, slaves don't get counted as a, as a full person but get counted as only three fifths of a person. So for, for for the purposes of also taxation and but also um, representation in the in the in the house, and so immediately the census from the very 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 beginning was a political tool that apportioned power, but also a political tool that apportioned power based on um, sort of the, the racial or the ethnic and, and uh, composition or what is believed to be race, because race doesn't really exist in biology, but as what was seen to be racial, right? So um, it was immediately uh, racialized and uh, was used as such. So the history of using the census as a kind of, um, you know, as a, a, to, to, to intertwine uh, politics and race, uh, goes back to the foundation of uh, of America. So, what impact could asking this? I'm, well, I'm going to ask you these basic questions at the beginning. How, what input, impact could asking the citizenship question have on the census? And maybe even more importantly, how different is this kind of racialization from past racialization of mm-hmm. the census? Well, okay. In this case, because Trump, um, Trump. This kind of uh, the Trump administration, I think, with prodding from Steve Bannon, um, is, is, had this idea early on, right, to to reintroduce a citizenship question to the census, um, something that hasn't been done in, in, in something like half a century. Um, and and the point of it was, I think, twofold. One of it, one of the is just a pure like political theater, right, as a kind of thing to the to Trump sort of you know white nationalist base, right, and to its uh, to its anti-immigrant base, is to saying like, look, we're doing something. To figure out, you know, who's a citizen here, you know, who isn't, uh, and we're because because we want to protect America from this immigrant threat, and 
potentially, you know, this attempts to tamper with the vote or like uh, stuff stuff the ballots with legal immigrants, you know, flooding, flooding, flooding the uh, voting booths, right? Uh, so part of it is sort of political theater, um, but on, uh, part of it is actually has has re- real ramifications. Um, uh, so it, introducing a citizenship question immediately kind of strikes fear and apprehension in a lot of uh, immigrant and minority communities because communities where you know some some might have relatives or family members uh, who are undocumented, right, or, or who are just worried about their immigration status. And so what um, what pretty much, you know, any serious expert who's uh, who's 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 uh, studied this this question, um, um, you know, people, they agree that introducing a citizenship question will depress um, uh, uh, census participation uh, in um, immigrant communities. And so if the uh, participation drops low, uh, drops you know, uh, enough, then it'll actually skew. Um, you know the representation that these states have on on a federal level, right, in the House of Representatives, and so it and and also it will because the census is used to apportion federal uh, the federal budget and 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 fund various programs at a state level. Um, it'll actually also skew the amount of funding that gets that gets funneled from federal government to to to, um, to state and local levels because suddenly the population there is undercounted, right? So it'll have an undercounting of immigrant populations in certain regions of the country. And so the effects of that are not quite clear because, you know, um, one, of the, one of the ideas is that it'll actually sort of um, uh, empower certain sort of red states and, and disempower uh, sort of more blue or democratic states. But, like, there isn't a consensus on that. But, the consen- but there is a consensus on the fact that if you put the citizenship question on there, it'll depress um, uh, participation in, in the census, and you get an undercount of the population, and you get an undercount specifically in areas that are, um, um, you know, predominantly or heavily you know, immigrant and uh, minority. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, that's, a, that's a serious issue. But isn't the census confidential or can other agencies within the U.S. government like ICE go through the data and locate undocumented immigrants or those whose visas have expired? Because I don't really understand why even with the citizenship question, I mean, I understand the intimidation. I understand that part of it. But my my belief, my white privilege belief was always that U.S. census (laughs) is confidential. So is it confidential? Well, it's confidential. There's there there is a confidentiality. Yes, it, it cannot be shared, and it, census data cannot be used for anything other than statistical purposes. So, in by law, right, census data uh, cannot be used to build databases and uh, you know be accessed by ICE or or immigration uh, sort of enforcement agencies. But the problem is that you know laws change first of all, and second of all, I mean uh, I don't I don't think you know people trust the federal government. Um, very much, and especially in the Trump era, especially if you are an immigrant or come from an immigrant family, uh, and, you know, and the the ramping up in sort of the enforcement of immigration, sort of this really kind of these Gestapo tactics and, and the rhetoric around it, right? That you, there is it creates this pretty dark cloud, and you don't trust, you know, someone coming to your house from the federal government asking if you're a citizen or not, right? I mean, it, it's just. Part of it is, yes, law. You are protected by law, but I don't think people have much faith in the law protecting them from from sort of immigration raids and things like that. I don't think that people who would be the most susceptible to this, right, 
uh, feel like they have any power at all, in, you know, in, in America, right? Or any rights, really. Or, can, or if there are rights, they not, don't really apply to them as much as to maybe, you know, people like uh, you and me who have, our, you know, are safely have our white privilege. Um, and so I think it is, it, is, it is a big issue. And, you know, I'm an immigrant um, myself. Um, you know, I, I was born in the Soviet Union, came to the States in, in uh, 1990. Uh, and I'm a U.S. citizen, and so um, you know, but I so I I can understand because I know people who have immigration problems, you know, who came to the U.S. Uh, either they were fleeing um, and it didn't come in the most you know legal manner, and so you know this affects this this affects the communities because you know that like you don't want to if you are um, you know if you are uncertain about your immigration status. Even if you maybe have a green card or whatever, you don't really want to call attention to yourself if you don't have to. And so you just will say, "Well, you know what? I'm just going to pretend like I'm not here. Why should I respond to this um, to this to the census taker that comes in here? I'll just pretend I'm not here." And so it's it's just it's easy, right? And so and then you get undercounted, and and that's that. And you basically disappear from 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 the population statistics as far as the census is concerned. So and you also have to remember that you know laws change, right? So. Um, and the big example of, of how census law was used, to, census data was used to target Americans and American citizens was, um, you know, the internment of Japanese Americans in, in, in California and, and other uh, communities around the United States. You know, the census data was used to actually create um, basically block by block lists of Japanese Americans and, and create rosters that were then used to round these people up and deport them. Uh, and not deport them, but to deport them into into these concentration camps where they were held. And so there is a history of the United States using census data, right, for pretty dark purposes and dark reasons. So you know, um, law you know, law isn't any guarantee. You're right. Based on a close reading of internal Department of Commerce documents tied to the census uh, citizen question proposal, it appears the Trump administration wants to use the census to construct a first of its kind citizenship registry. What's the point of a citizenship registry? Because we're all going to have national ID cards soon anyway through the implementation of the Real ID Act. Aren't we all going to be scanning our cards and the government surveilling us and collecting more information on us through real ID compliance anyway. So what's the point of a citizenship registry? Well, I mean, this is this is a kind of one of the darker aspects of the Trump uh, administration plan to add the citizenship question that I think hasn't gotten nearly the, the attention that it deserves. Uh, because a group of former uh, census uh, officials um, and um, were con- convened to sort of to, to evaluate Trump's Trump's census question plan, and to see what the effects of that would be, and they found in in the documentation and the sort of the correspondence between uh, the um, the Chamber of Commerce, which oversees the census, um, plans to to use um, census data to create a federal citizenship um, database or registry. Now, this would go. Uh, this is this is potentially illegal because. Um, because the census, U.S. Census Bureau, can only use the data that it collects to create statistical, for statistical purposes, to create statistical portraits of the American population and not create registries or databases that can identify people. So the data is there to identify people, right? But it cannot be used that way. And so deep, deep, deep in, 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 the, in, the, in the details of the plan, uh, Trump's plan to create a citizenship uh, 
uh, question and to, and to carry out the census is this is this mention of using that data for a citizenship registry and I mean and 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 it's and it's 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 right now kind of a mystery about what it means and what they're trying to do because it seems to go squarely against the law as as is written right now. Now, to your question, why would you need a citizenship registry? Well, there isn't such a thing as a citizenship registry. I mean, there are there are you can potentially create that by using different databases by merging um you know, various DMV records and state department records about you know, who 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 isn't and uh uh, a citizen, but um, there isn't an actual registry like that. There isn't because th- there isn't just a unified registry, actually, of, of, of American citizens um, and like where they live and, and, and what's going on. So I think you know one of the some of the ideas that some of the thinking behind you know the Trump's plan is that um, you want to create a registry like that because nothing like that exists. So how? Might a citizen's registry affect lives? You quote uh, Robert Groves, a former Census Bureau director who headed the National Academies Committee, convened to investigate the 2020 census. And he tells you that uh, it, this will identify particular people in order to use that technology to affect their lives. So how might a citizen's registry affect lives? That's a, that's a good question. Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, one of the things is that if you create a citizenship registry, you also create a registry of who isn't a citizen, right? Um, so I think maybe the, the question isn't isn't about finding out who is a citizen, but identifying who isn't a citizen. And of course, you can let your imagination run wild um, with what that information could be used for, right? Uh, prior to the 2016 presidential election, there were concerns of what would happen to the all-important 2020 census that Democrats were counting on to give a shift toward Latinx voters with the assumption that meant uh, more Democratic Party votes. Do you think it matters which Republican happens to be in the White House right now? Do you believe this same thing would have happened, an attempt to underrepresent Latinx voters and suppress their vote by any Republican, or do you think this is unique to Trump? Because so many of the things that Trump does, Democrats, MSNBC loves to say this is unique to him and him alone. Yeah, I don't think this is unique to him. I mean, I don't even think this is his really idea. Uh, I think this is a long-term Republican plan to do to do something like that. Um, and so, no, I don't think it's unique to Trump. I mean, just Trump is you know the problem with Trump, like in many things, um, he just is too crude and too obvious about it, right? He doesn't. The Trump administration doesn't really mince. The words it doesn't try to couch um, its actions in sort of slightly more uh, you know centrist language, but it just goes full on and 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 says things the way that they are, and actually somewhat you know speaks truthfully to some degree, you know, um, and that really freaks people out. But I don't think the Trump administration is very different in, in this regard. No, I um, mean, look, you have to also remember that, like you know, the um, the census has always been one of the big um, one of the big. Uh, criticism in the sense is that it always undercounts. It basically has it's, it's skewed to undercount um, people who are uh, from immigrant communities, but also people who are who, who are poor. So, you know, like areas that are poor are always undercounted, um, and that's just that's a, that's a fact of the census that goes back many 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 decades, um, and it's sort of biased against uh, poor and immigrant communities from from the get go um, because. You have to spend a lot more money to do outreach to communities that are poor. There are a lot more people living in, in a single household. Um, people move around a lot more. Uh, you know, there's sort of more transient communities, right, that are looking for work. 
And so it's to, it's much harder to count the, that segment of the population. And of course, there's people who are immigrants uh, who are scared of talking to anybody from the federal government, no matter what, if, even if there's a citizenship question or not, right? So this portion of, of the population, the poor and the immigrant and sort of in, in minority uh, portions of the population are generally undercounted and have been for many decades. You write, at an oversight hearing in March, Democratic U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez dug into Wilbur Ross, Trump's multimillionaire Secretary of Commerce who oversees the U.S. Census Bureau. She accused him of conspiring with nativists and white supremacists to add the citizenship question and of overstepping his authority. How much is the citizenship question a dog whistle for fascists? I mean, I think it's a it's a big dog whistle for not just fascists, but I think Republican sort of anti-immigrant um, um, voters. You know, um, I think it's just it's it's a it is it is a kind of a it is in a way a, a political um, strategy to to show that the Trump administration is sort of on the side of of, of you know, Americans and uh, trying to keep this tide of of uh, the immigrant hordes, you know, away from American, uh, from America and keeping them outside of American borders. So I think it's, it's, it's a big, um, it is a big dog whistle. You're right. And, you know, look, and what's interesting about it is that there are a number of challenges to, to, to this plan that have originated in, in, in actually a couple of different states. Um, and these have been moving through the courts and now it's in the, it's in the Supreme court actually. So the Supreme court is, is now deliberating this, whether or not um, this, uh, question is, is 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 adding this question um, is actually legal or illegal, right? Uh, and whether it's within the constitutional authority of of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and it's not clear, but the the the, the um, chances are that it will be deemed legal and that it will actually happen. Chances are the, the sort of the money is on the fact that the citizenship question will be allowed to go through, and the 2020 census will have the citizenship question uh, added. Now, of course, it could go either way, but the, the good money is on that right now. And we'll know in the coming weeks. So will the I know that the country will have to suffer with those outcomes for 10 years before the 2030 census. Uh, how much will if a Democrat did take power, did uh, become president in 2020, uh, would how much. Uh, could they roll back any of the problems that would have been caused with the 2020 census and the citizenship question? Well, I don't think they'd have much power. Uh, you know, that, those those numbers stand until the next census is counted. And so, um, again, the the actual effects of it, the actual political effects of it, um, are not are not clear. Um, you know, the based on like this kind of complex formula, right? Um, states lose and gain. Um, seats in the House of Representatives all the time. And in fact, New York is, is, is slated to lose one or two seats um, in the House of Representatives after this um, census. And so the undercounting of immigrant communities um, could actually weigh it you know, even more and actually subtract from the population, counterpopulation of New York even more and push it you know, maybe from one seat to two seats. But it's not quite clear, right? No one really knows uh, what's going to happen. And so you know, so it could have a pretty big effect uh, on the next election, um, because you know it's gonna it's gonna change the political sort of makeup and representation of states in, on on in the federal government in the House of Representatives. And so, the effects of it 
are going to be felt for, for, for quite a while until the next census. But it's not clear what those effects really are. I mean, that, that's one of the things that, you know, is, is what's be- bewildering, you know, and you talk to, you talk to people, uh, you know, former census officials, and they are just sort of like ripping out their hair saying like, look, you don't do this. You don't do something that has this effect that for the next decade, right? Um, without really understanding how it's going to play out, or whether or not adding the citizenship question will actually, you know, skew the results of the census. So you really have to test it out. You have, they have all these different methods of, of, of testing the possible effects of changing the census and changing the makeup of the census. It's a, uh, and so they're, you know, they're, they're, they see Trump's administration plan to do this as sort of pushing it through without any consultation, without any, um, without any. Um, Really, regard for the effects is really, quite clearly a political, um, political step, right? Um, but I don't. Maybe you know. The, the, but the thing, the thing is, is that this could potentially have an effect of you know undercounting um, um, p- populations in Republican states as well, because it's pretty mixed. You know, the way that the, the immigrant communities are sort of spread around the country, and so I mean, in theory. It could hurt, you know, Republican uh, political um, fortunes in the next election, but it's not clear. That's the thing. It's it's, it's very. It's no one really knows. So it's just a, it's a crapshoot. It's a gamble. How much is either race a creation of the census, or maybe just reinforcement of the census? Because as you were sensing, saying earlier that this, you know, race is a fiction, as past guest and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Elizabeth Colbert wrote in the race issue of National Geographic in April of 2018, there's no scientific basis for race. It's a made-up label. So to what degree can we blame race and racism in the United States on the census? Um, I mean, well, we can't blame racism on, on the census, but we can blame the codification of races, race and racial identity and racial categories, legal racial categories on the census, because this is where they came in um, for the most part. They came in through the census on a federal level. So the federal government codified, quote-unquote, race through the census. And these racial categories have sort of like shifted and changed, but for the most part, they have remained very static from uh, going back to almost the very beginning, to the, to the, to the 19th century. Um, and so we can definitely blame uh, the creation of racial categories and legal racial categories on the census. Um, you know, the census was always, has always been a mirror of um, a reflection of American racial politics and racial fears. So in the, in the 19th century, in the mid-19th century, when America really started experiencing this huge surge of immigration, um, there was uh, immigration from China. Um, all this sort of cheap labor was being imported from China to build uh, railroads, the transcontinental railroads. Uh, that's coming sort of from the West Coast, right? And then from the East Coast, you had this huge influx of immigrants from uh, from from Ireland, from from southern Italy, from um, sort of the the western edge of, of the Russian Empire, you know, Eastern Europe, um, and you had this big surge of immigration, and that's when really race began to start, started to be included on the census because uh, America's sort of Anglo uh, elite uh, was really concerned, started to be really concerned about the fact that all of these people that were coming to America, bringing their foreign cultures, their foreign religions, uh, their foreign languages and, and, and foreign ideologies like socialism, right? Bring 
it to American shores. They thought that this was going to degrade America, degrade America not just culturally but also genetically, because these people were um, had uh, were breeding much more, you know, than um, sort of what they what they deemed themselves to be Native Americans, right? These sort of original settlers of America that were predominantly Anglo, um, and this is when race began to be included more and more and more on the census, uh, and you began to see the addition of um, different racial categories. You also began to see the addition of different categories for uh, blacks um, uh, and African Americans on the census after the, the, the Civil War and after the, the liberation of slaves in America, um, because after that, American elite, the American elite began to really worry about intermixing and interbreeding, and so you. you Sort of state planners wanted to know, okay, you know, how many how many mixed people do we have? So you would have, you know, there would actually be questions on the census about mulattoes added, and about people mulattoes who were a quarter mulatto, right, half mulatto, an eighth mulatto, and you would have, you know, uh, additions about people from China. You would have uh, sub questions about which country people were from, if they were immigrants, if they were not native born, about where their mothers are from, where their fathers are from, and so you would have this. The census began to reflect. The fears uh, of America's elite uh, and 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 attempts to control immigration sort of um, merged with that because they um, various immigration uh, laws and acts that, that that put quotas on immigration in the early 20th century were based on data that was collected through the census and based on racial data and immigration data that was collected through the census. So the census was always an instrument of sort of this, like, uh, American nativist pol politics. And, you know, and you can see that, of course, today with the, with the Trump administration's plan to do, uh, to, to add the citizenship question. We are speaking with investigative journalist Yasha Levin. He posted the Medium.com article, The Racist and High-Tech Origins of America's Modern Census. Yasha is the author of Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet, and you can find out more about Yasha's book at surveillancevalley.com. Follow uh, Yasha on Twitter at Yasha11, where he describes himself as a Soviet-American and nefarious Russian, which I absolutely uh, that, love. The Soviet-American, that's, uh, that's going to be a new uh, racial category uh, on the uh, 2020 census. So, I expect you to be yeah. checking that box, my friend. <laughs> So I've, I will. I've heard suggest will. I've heard suggestions of eliminating race from the census, but I've also heard that could lead to less federal financing for programs fighting racism and issues that disproportionately affect people of color. Should the census be any more than what it was originally a headcount? That's a good question. You know, and I and, and there are a lot of people, um, a lot of uh, actually former census officials and. Um, um, historians and sort of experts in the field that do argue that we should roll back the mandate, you know, for the for for the census and sort of roll it back to the sort of original idea that we just want to do a headcount in order to have uh, representation uh, apportioned in the House of Representatives, right? And we can figure out all the other kind of data about the makeup of of of, of a populate of communities around America through. Uh, sampling, you know, through sort of you, you sample portions of the population and you project, make projections based on those samples. And so you don't need to, you know, do a whole count of people and you don't need to ask these very sensitive questions, right, and, 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 and scare people away, right, uh, from participating in the census. You would get a much truer count uh, of the population, so you get a much more accurate representation of 
uh, each state's population uh, for the House of Representatives. And then for all the other stuff where you need to apportion, you know, federal, the federal budget um, in all sorts of ways, you can use more advanced or statistical methods that have been proven to be quite accurate, um, but don't require this blanket, right, um, um, sort of uh, um, like uh, enumeration and, 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 and this blanket sort of, uh, where you have to send census takers to people's homes and, and, and badger them into answering these questions because you can do it by just answering small portions of the population and, and, and get accurate counts that way. And so I think there's, there's something to be said for that. Um, although, you know, it's, it's a good... It's, you know, there's so many problems in America. There's so many things that need to be kind of reformed, and and uh, that I don't know if, how high this is on the uh, on the to-do list uh, of uh, dictator uh, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> so the United States, you, re- you mentioned the United States race obsessed political class is the one percent race obsessed, and does their race obsession fuel all our race obsession because they are also the political class. Is race obsession in the U.S. grounded in the race obsession of the political class who see other races as threats to their wealth and power? I mean, it's a good question, you know, because I think the the 1% now is kind of di- somewhat, you know, somewhat more diverse than it was um, because I, I think you're quoting me. I'm, I'm actually talking about, you know, the, the 1% or the 0.001% or the, uh, of America back in the 19th and early 20th century, right? And I think back then it was a much more homogenous elite. Um, it was mostly Anglo and, or you know, sort of Northern European, um, and uh, and they really did. It was you know overwhelmingly Protestant, right? And they, it, so it was a much more um, uh, homogenous group of, of of people. And so they were definitely race obsessed, and they saw a lot of the political upheavals that were happening in America uh, in end of the nineteenth century and early twentieth century as a kind of foreign importation, right, from from abroad, right, as a kind of a disease, and almost not just a cultural importation, but also a genetic uh, importation. And they b- truly believed that, you know, all these peasants that were coming in from from Ireland, from Italy, from Russia, um, they were unfit to be Americans. They were unfit to be true, fully uh, sort of uh, full Americans endowed with all the rights that Americans have in America. Uh, you know, uh, and so. They worried about it, and, and they also saw them as a threat to their power because a lot of the stuff was linked to, uh, you know, the working class, right? So the, the, the poor masses of America who were trying to organize into labor unions, who were uh, engaging in strikes, who were fighting for some kind of dignity, right, in this, in this new country that they came to. And so the, the, um, the issues of class, class war, right, and the issues of race and ethnicity and language and culture became kind of intertwined. Uh, and so definitely a hundred years ago, right, this was like, you, you couldn't, you couldn't really separate those two things out at, at all. Right. And, and so, and to some degree that exists today, of course, it's a little bit muddier. It's, it's more, it's not as clear cut necessarily, but of course that is, that is, that is present for sure. Um, and because again, you have a lot of immigrants coming to, to America, uh, a lot of undocumented immigrants who have no rights, and, you know, and the big corporations that employ them either, let's say, you know, you can take any sector, but let's you take agriculture or the meatpacking industries. Right. And you, of course, don't want these people to have any rights. And so you don't want them to be recognized as as, as citizens or as to have full, to have or even just sort of uh, documented, you know, American residents. Um, you want them to live in fear. And so the you know economics and class warfare and exploitation are 
uh, linked to immigration and linked to a uh, quote-unquote race and linked to you know the identity of these people. And so, yeah, you can't really separate them out. Was this racialization of the census a purposeful attempt at coming up with a reason for the shortcomings of U.S. political and economic policy in order to find a rationalization for those shortcomings to persist? Were all the problems really capitalism's and representative democracy's fault and the powers that be were simply seeking a logic to have it continue as they benefited from that capitalism and that political economy the most? Of course, yeah. I mean, you know, you have this instrument. You know, you have a, you have a, uh, every 10 years, you know, the U.S. government conducts this count and, and you have this instrument of trying to figure out who the po- what the population was like, wh- what was going on. And so, of course, it's going to be used as an instrument, but it's not going to be used in the sort of you know, this sort of mythological, objective, technocratic fashion of like, oh, let's figure out what the problem is. We'll live, let's gather objective data and then we'll make our decisions based on this objective data. No, I mean, it was, it was, it was ideological from the very beginning. It had a point, you know, um, and, um, and it was just an instrument of um, excusing and sort of finding, um, ra- rationalizing um, already, you know, American sort of ideological, political, uh, this sort of America's political reality that uh, the elites favored. And uh, so, of course, it was just an instrument of, of the ruling elite, and, um, and it was used that way, as used as a battering ram um, that, um, you know, really was, it, it was interesting, you know, look, you know, what's, what's, what's really interesting about this stuff is like, um, I mean, so I got into this you know, we, we were heavy into the census, right? And we ha- were heavy into the Trump administration. But I got into the story um, in a very, I was like through the back door, right? Um, very unexpectedly, because I, 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 I found out about, you know, the, the, the sort of racialization of the census and all these things were almost like secondary to the main story that I was pursuing, which was I was looking into the history of computers. Um, I wrote this book that you mentioned in the beginning, Surveillance Valley, and I was trying to get to the, where did the computers come from? What was the first commercial computer? Where did it originate? And I was surprised to find that the first computer was actually built on order for the U.S. Census Bureau. Um, And it was built on order from the U.S. Census Bureau to count um, the census because the census was getting so big and there was so much data, partially uh, a lot of racial data, that it was impossible to uh, count by hand anymore. And it almost took a decade. The 1880 census almost took a decade to count by hand. You know, essentially making the, the information invalid and already you have to do the next census. And so officials at the U.S. Census Bureau who were very, very concerned about the racial makeup of America, uh, about the sort of the, the influx of the, the degenerate immigrants and, and what effect they were having on American society and America's genetic makeup. They were uh, concerned about that and they wanted to collect more and more and more data about the racial uh, uh, makeup of, of, of America's population. But they were also concerned with the fact they couldn't count it fast enough, right? And so one of the things that came out of that is the punch card tabulator, um, invented by this guy named Herman Hollerith in, uh, in uh, the 1880s, and first put to use in, 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 in enumerating or counting um, the 1890 census. And so the, the Herman Hollerith tabulator became sort of ubiquitous when it was absorbed into IBM, um, international business machines, this giant computer conglomerate um, that is still ubiquitous in, in government and, and business administration, and is the oldest computer company in the world. Um, it was absorbed into that, but but that the impetus for the creation of this technology, right, was actually 
um, in, in large part, this, this obsession with race and a succession of counting race in the American population. Uh, and, you know, one of the sort of amazing quotes um, that you find in the letters of Herman Hollerith, when he was explaining uh, how he got, how he invented the, this, this device of his and how he was making different design decisions based on, on um, sort of uh, what it was going to be used for, he was, he was specifically used the example of counting, quote-unquote, Chinamen, right? And he said that, you know, like, we're going to need to count a lot of Chinamen, Chinamen and so we have to, we have to, uh, meaning that, you know, we have to focus on race. We're counting race here, right, in the census. And so I'm going to design the cards to be, to be a certain way so that it makes counting particular attributes of an individual um, that is um, represented in the census data easier, right? So you can isolate individuals in this data based on their, their attributes and primarily race is like the key thing for them. And when this, this, this tabulators were put to use in the 1890 census for the first so they were just jubilant. I mean, they were euphoric because they, they said, like, wow, for the first time, we can run these complex um, statistical analysis on this data to isolate, um, you know, not just get like these aggregate numbers of the number of uh, people from China or the number of people from, from Ireland or the number of people from, from Russia. But we can actually get, we can actually join data. We can get, you know, um, um, we can look at, let's say, the, the unemployment in the Chinese population. We can get the uh, literacy level in uh, foreign-born population, right? We can get um, um, criminal uh, levels uh, in immigrant population or foreign-born populations. And so this is something you couldn't really do by hand. So computers allowed... Um, America's census officials and the American political elite to mine this data and to use it politically. And so, of course, the data was used to show, look, you know, there's all these foreigners. They can't read, they can't write, but they can vote. And you have, you know, alarmist articles in the New York Times um, in the, in the 18, 1890s, you know, talking about how New York is just filled with all these foreigners and they can vote, but they're just uneducated. They can't speak, you know, they don't speak English. Uh, they have, and so it, it was used to whip up the sphere of this other that was invading America that powers, uh, um, but they but they were you know degenerate and dirty and you know uh, poverty stricken and so they were going to change America to their, into their into their image and, and transform America in their image and so this, this data that was collected and analyzed with these punch card tabulators was immediately politicized and immediately was used to whip up anti-immigrant hysteria. And, and uh, almost immediately after this, um, you know, a, a whole flurry of uh, federal legislation passed. So the first uh, establishment of actually a federal immigration um, agency uh, and policy was it happened a year after uh, the 1890 census, which was um, tabulated or com computed with these, these, uh, these punch card tabulators. And almost every year after that, there was a uh, legislation passed that further restricted um, and controlled immigration to the country. So there was an interesting kind of uh, symbiosis where you had the census, the, uh, the creation of these computers, and the, um, and the tightening of uh, immigration laws in, in the country all kind of happening uh, in, in a series, one after the other. 
you write that Hollerith's uh, IBM tabulators were a big hit all over the world, but one country was particularly enamored with them, Nazi Germany. To Hitler, the problem plaguing Germany was not economic or political. It was racial. Hitler and the Nazis drew much of their inspiration from the U.S. eugenics movement and the system of institutional racism that had arisen in slavery's wake. Their solution was to isolate the so-called migrants... I'm sorry, mongrels, then continuously monitor the racial purity of the German people to keep the Volk free of further contamination. So <laughs> are our white supremacists, they're not a creation of Hitler? Is it the other way around? Did American white supremacy create Nazism? Well, I don't know if you can say it created Nazism, but I, but I do think that people really forget, and there's been kind of a brain wipe, I think, um, in America, about really how fascist, uh, openly fascist, you know, uh, and, and Nazi-like, uh, because America was in uh, the early 20th century, in the, in the, before World War II. I mean, really, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, they kind of took these ideas about white supremacy and genetic purity and eugenics, right, the, the, the idea of you got to almost selectively breed humans and, and cut out the sort of the bad genes out of the population to, to, to make it pure and, and good. How openly, how, how popular this was in America. I mean, it was, it was, it was just like, it was like, a, it, was, it was obvious that eugenics was a good thing. It was obvious that selective breeding was a good thing in American society. Uh, it was obvious that forced sterilization of People deemed to be degenerate was a good thing, uh, and um, and there was even you know um, these sort of um, um, that you actually should uh, exclude immigrants who are deemed to be imbeciles, you know, from from uh, from you don't allow them to come into America. And Ellis Island would actually give these sort of uh, aptitude tests to immigrants uh, to see if they were if they were smart enough to allow to, to be allowed to come in. This was seen as like scientific. This was seen as progressive. It was seen as like. It was seen as a wave of the future. Eugenics was 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 popular. I mean, to the point where um, to the point where people uh, would enroll their entire families into these sort of uh, fitter families or you know better babies contests that would pop up in these country fairs, uh, county fairs um, around the country. You would actually enroll your family, submit them to a panel of doctors who would measure you know craniums. Who would look at your medical history? Who would look at the shape of your of your of your of your body, of your nose, of your eyes, and you know would then judge you based on that, and would have contests. You know, families would compete against each other for being the best genetic uh, sort of specimen of, the, of you know, in their town or county, um, and they would be, uh, you know, they would be uh, displayed right alongside hogs and cows and all this stuff like you know really the the best bred animals that we can that we can find and people would get awards for that this is this is something that was popular people did it out of their own free will and were proud of it um so so um and america was the first in the world to really pass sterilization laws uh over 30 states had uh four sterilization laws i think it was 32 states and tens of thousands of people uh were sterilized by by force, by the court, by order of courts, and and um, and uh, their physicians, and this was upheld by the Supreme Court, the the right of the state to sterilize you, right, and to prevent you from breeding, because it was seen as, as to be in the interest of society to prevent um, 
defective genes from spreading. And uh, Nazi Germany and Nazi scientists really studied these laws and actually patterned their own uh, own uh, laws and on American forced sterilization laws. And so, I mean, you know, it's a big topic, but but the but there was a lot of affinity uh, between America and what Nazi Germany was doing. But the problem was. Hitler and the Nazis, you know, they took it way too far. They were too obvious about it. You know, they put on the uniforms, they goose-stepped. They were too, just too comically, ridiculously evil, right, uh, about the whole thing. And so they kind of ruined it for everybody. And so after World War II, this, this, this you know, eugenics and sterilization and, and, and uh, was seen, it was kind of fell out of favor. Nobody wanted to talk about it anymore. And this, this history was kind of just brushed under the rug and kind of forgotten. But it's a really rich, rich history. I mean, you had everyone from Teddy Roosevelt um, to H.G. Wells supporting uh, eugenics and the, the idea that we need to breed human beings like we breed cows or, or pigs because a farmer knows that you don't breed your prize hog with some degenerate hog, right, that your neighbor owns. No, you only breed, you know, a prize hog with, a, with, you know, with, with other prized uh, pigs and then to get the best possible genetics of, uh, uh, specimen, right? So why are we allowing people to interbreed and just without any control? This is ridiculous. I mean, we're doing something that farmers have known for thousands of years. You don't do, yet we're allowing this to happen. And so this was a popular idea in America. And, you know, and, and, it, and it moves very, very comfortably, right, into Nazi Germany and the idea, ideology of Nazi Germany um, and about the idea of preserving the Aryan race. So, you know, we it's not like we didn't create the Nazis, right? Um, but the Nazis didn't uh, definitely uh, definitely were inspired by a lot of things that America was doing. Yeah, uh, America is so inspirational, Yasha. It's really, it's really <laughs> great, isn't it? I mean, I, I would, I would, you know, I would. Uh, I don't know about you, but it'd be pretty fun to uh, be to win a war, an award right next to a right next to a cow. Uh, for your genetic superiority, <laughs> I don't think the Nazis even went that far, to be honest. And I don't think, <laughs> and I, to be honest, because of my uh, genetic problems, I don't think I'd win that match anyway. One last question for you, Yasha. We have been speaking with investigative journalist Yasha Levin, who posted the Medium.com article, "The Racist and High Tech Origins of Americans' Modern Census." He's an, not only an investigative uh, journalist, but he's also an author of "Surveillance Valley: The Secret Military History of the Internet." And you can find out more about Yasha's book at Surveillance Valley. Dot com. One last question for you, Yasha, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to oh, ask, no. you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response. You write, the dark and ugly history of the census makes it a uniquely telling weather vein of race politics in America that the census simultaneously played a central role in the development of the computer age more than 130 years ago, makes it doubly relevant, offering a glimpse into how computers, surveillance, and racist government policies have been linked together from the very beginning. Is it possible, and if it is, how can we disconnect computers from surveillance and both from being used to create and enforce racist government policies? Well, that's a big question. Uh, I'm not even sure. I mean, it, it, it seems like a question from heaven, actually, not, not from hell. Um, I don't know. You know, it's a good question. You know, looking at the history of, of how data is used uh, and, and our and the 20th, this 20th century obsession with data and collecting data on everything. I mean, and not just, you know, population data, but I mean, if you look at, if you look at the modern world, right. And people wear these tracking devices, they voluntarily track themselves. 
the progress, you know, their heartbeat, their the number of calories they they they're, they're using it every day, the number of steps they take. Um, this this cultural obsession with data, right? There's something really, you know, is very very um, embedded in a kind of technocratic 20th century ideology, and it's not just capitalism. I think you know, socialist uh, countries also are very much obsessed with data, and 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 but in, in a slightly different way. Um, and so I, it's a good, I, I, I can't answer that question really, I think, but because I think it's deeply embedded in something, something very cultural, uh, and something modern, maybe, you know, uh, part of modern society, we are obsessed with data and that data is going to be used politically in one way or another. Uh, it, and so I, I was, I will, I was thinking, you know, when I was writing this and, 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 Instead of delving deeply into this, is it possible to run a modern society, kind of, and be and be data agnostic about it? How much data do we really need about society to run it properly, and and and, and in a way that sort of benefits people and and benefits the planet and benefits um, our you know our uh, our souls? You know, if I can say that. Uh, Although I, there hasn't been any, uh, you know, data on that, um, I don't think maybe uh, they still is, the jury's out to lunch on the soul question. But the, the, you know what I'm saying? Is it is it is it possible to run modern society without being obsessed with data? And I don't know about that. I, I wonder what you think. Yeah, I don't know either, and it's a frightening thing because, uh, as Ruben Anderson was pointing out earlier. That uh, big data is advancing not only surveillance, but it's also advancing violence against people all around the world. So it's very, it's a very scary. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a strange thing. Like, what is what is what is this what is this obsession with data? Because you can use data for good, right? You can use data, you know, um, to you can in, use it to to do good in the world. But but ultimately, we are obsessed with. We're hoarders. We're data hoarders, right? We want to collect as much data as possible and to never give it up and to never delete it. And our society is like that. And um, I mean, uh, it's 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 a good question because I think I think it would be a, an interesting uh, experiment uh, to see what kind of world we can build without being obsessed with uh, this sort of this uh, collection of putting embedding sensors into everything, right? Uh, but I don't know. I think your question from hell was better than mine. <laughs> I really appreciate it, Yasha. It's always great to hear Thank your you. voice, sir, and I'm looking forward to having you back on the show in the very near future. Take care and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So one of the things I realize is that when I was reading Yasha's work is that all racists are are people who are unwilling to criticize capitalism and more than willing to criticize people based on the color of their skin they're afraid of criticizing capitalism and that makes them racist live from the good old us of a where capitalism is all our pimp this is hell if you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp support this is hell by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support when you do we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site again this is hell.com then click on support thanks this week goes to the incredible tithing commitment of brett uh, the kind support of Corey, who told us not to send any of the gifts we offer supporters, which, like I said, very kind. Willem was incredibly supportive of This Is Hell this week. Willem says he is supporting and listening to This Is Hell in Luxembourg, which he tells us, parenthetically, 
is also hell. Finally, thanks to Matt, who supported This Is Hell at thisishell.com, and clicked on support to check out our gifts for those who do support. Matt writes, hey, Alex, this is Matt from Olympia. I think this covers three T-shirts, a mug with Patreon and bonus item discounts. I'll pick things up at office hours this Wednesday. Thanks. In fact, that's exactly what Matt did, and he emailed us the day following hanging out with us during office hours. I'll tell you about that and what he said following our next guest. Or maybe earlier. Is it earlier? I'm not too sure. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever if you want to be thanked on air. Support This Is Hell and get a This Is Hell coffee mug, t-shirt, and or tote bag. Go to thisishell.com and click on support. Joe Biden's sexist, racist, anti-poor, anti-worker record and loyalty to the banking industry supporting the deregulation of the financial sector that led to the collapse of 2008 and his inability to effectively organize and win national elections all mean there's not a chance in hell Joe will make it to the general elections to be soundly defeated by President Trump. Or does it? Democrats have made poor choices of candidates running against Trump in the past, so who's to say they won't put another loser up against Trump? We'll get the whole skinny on Joe Biden what, that the news media doesn't want to report as they focus solely on poll numbers when we have the return of Andrew Coburn, who wrote the Mar- March Harper's cover story, No Joe, Joe Biden's Disastrous Legislative Legacy. Andrew is Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, and he was on most recently in December 2016 when he posted the Harper's cover story, The New Red Scare, Reviving the Art of Threat Inflation, which turned out to be pretty prophetic, and you should go back and listen to that interview with Andrew from December of 2016. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's on the other side of the wall? What's on the other side of the wall? All replies read on air right now. This week's winner gets a copy of Reuben Anderson's book, No-Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our Politics, which we discussed with its author, Reuben, earlier on today's show. Again, the question from hell is, what's on the other side of the wall? Leave your responses right now at at facebook.com slash this is hell radio to still have a chance at winning this week's prize. Again, Ruben Anderson's book. Alex, you have all the questions to this week's all the answers to this week's question from hell because because what's on the other side of the wall? Mark R says death. Jacob J says, <laughs> "Hopefully Beto." <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? That was uh, Jacob J. Hey. Martin S says, "Civility." Krimsky K says, "A very disappointing album and a lawsuit." <laughs> Francesco T says, "Francesco T says the catastrophically spectacular apocalypse, which we seem intent on barreling towards." Insert Uber smiley emoji. Ooh, they have a new emoji. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, Pete B says, "Certainly no reason to build a wall." <laughs> Andrea J says, just another dystopian society, but with more Taco Bells. Okay. What's on the other side of the wall? Jessica B says, a more hellish hell than this is hell. <laughs> Pete V says, there be dragons. Yeah. Wally R says, Mitt Romney's tax haven? <laughs> Shane M says, dumpty scramble. <laughs> What's on the other side of the wall? Wait, Shane M's dumpty scramble. That's good. That's good. That's uh, good. Chris F says, this is a question for Roger Waters. <laughs> Ronaldo, R's, or Ronaldo M says, the other. Kelsey M says, lots of orgasms. Everyone gets an orgasm. You get an orgasm, and you get an orgasm, and you get an orgasm. 
On the other side of the wall are sexless idiots who put up the wall between effing town and themselves. <laughs> and then Fabio chimed in, buys ladder. <laughs> What's on the other side of the wall? Eric M says, what doesn't exist on the other side of the wall is what the president is telling us he makes, in, makes his political capital off of. Such a terrible catastrophe as the economic destruction without a clue as to the proper policy to deal with it. Greg G says, my baseball. It's been over there forever. <laughs> What's on the other side of the wall? Andrew T says, insignificant others. Jack B says, more walls. <laughs> Harold J says, strip malls, jack-in-the-box, fast food, and lion's den porn shops. Oh, wait, that's our side. Yeah, I was going to say, that's over in Sawyer, Michigan, I think. Fabio uh, also says, no one really knows, but it must have been bad. Look at all these walls they built. They must have been afraid of something. Seems like they all had a lot of demons they didn't deal with, which I read in Donald Trump's voice in my head. But apparently it's from a comic that uh, called High Level, number three, uh, that he sent us a link to. So take a look at that if you get a chance. What's on the other side of the wall? Alexandra C. says, a jumpy house? Kevin, I... I uh, we'll call it a bouncy house, a jump. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's a regional thing. House, yeah. Kevin O says every first inning base fastball you Darvish has ever thrown. <laughs> Pammy H says greener grass. Jack W says a far inferior wa Roger Waters less Pink Floyd uh, album with one or two listenable tracks per album. Ladio says snitty chicken. <laughs> Jeffy D says my neighbor's running an armada of blenders full of gravel. Sounds like Don L says depends on which side of the wall you're looking from. Sarah M says, insecurities I don't want to deal with. Dan G says, ocean water to the brim. <laughs> Michael C says, dick head, oh, I shouldn't have. <laughs> D, D head Reagan saying, tear it down. <laughs> Thomas K says, you are beautiful billboard. Oh, Thomas, uh, you know how mad those yes. make me. Oh uh, what's God. on the other side of the wall? Aaron D says, white walkers and MAGA hats. <laughs> Kaylin R says, a very satisfied wall retailer counting his scaremonger money and undisturbed by daily peril and uncertainty. Tom G says, separation anxiety. Randall M says, Mordor. Sebastian M says, Steve. F Steve. <laughs> he can stay on the other side for all I care. And Alexander H says, Bizarro World. A couple on... Who said Steve? Uh, that was... Hold on. Re... Uh, give me a second. Refreshing. Uh, on Twitter, uh, Cheap Seats says, Affordable Pharmaceuticals. Ben H says, In my experience, it's usually a gorilla. <laughs> Vasily K.A. says, what's on the other side of the wall? Another wall. The P-tape will not be televised, wrote the other side of the wall. Uh, Eat Farts 69, our friend, says, Trump come pedos, sprayed in big, bold letters. Martin S. says, oh my God, it's full of stars. <laughs> Renwick, Renwick M. says, vegetables, try Cinco de Mayo cultural appropriation without salsa and see how that works out. And finally, Kimmy R. says, a sweet set of new teeth. And uh, the Steve, the anti-Steve post was by Sebastian M. Seb M. All right. My response to the question from hell, what's on the other side of the wall? I, I would assume prisoners. Isn't that what's always on the other side of the wall? That are Mongol hordes. So I'm going with imprisoned Mongol hordes. All right. I really enjoy Jacob J. saying uh, Beto, hopefully, is on the other side of the wall. Shane saying Dumpty Scramble. Very good. Uh, Greg G. saying My Baseball that's been over there for years. Tom G. saying Separation Anxiety. And Seb M. saying Steve. F. Steve. Uh, all right. Jacob J., you're the winner of this week's Question from Hell, and you get a copy of Ruben Anderson's book, No Go World, for answering the question from hell, what's on the other side of the wall. 
and your response of Beto, hopefully. You have won Ruben Anderson's book. You'll be receiving it in the mail shortly, and all our listeners can uh, find can participate with the question from hell every week here on This Is Hell. Thanks, everyone, for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge this week, 21, 2251 West Devon. Now, we do them on Wednesday night every week from 6 to 9 p.m., but because we are doing these two two-hour shows on Wednesday and Thursday night from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. that you can only hear live by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. We are going to be having office hours after the Thursday show, so starting at 9 p.m. on Thursday night, you can join us for a later edition of office hours, and I'll be able to stay a little bit later because I'm not working the next day. All I'm going to be doing is sleeping in the back seat of a car as my girlie drives me somewhere. Drop by, drink, hang me, hang out, watch me drink, and get some free This Is Hell subvertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks to everyone who dropped by this week. Thanks to Matt, Nate, Joel, Wally, Alex, Leo, Pete, Jonah, Elliot, Jordan, Shelley, John, and other John, and everyone else. I can't remember because I was freaking out about booking next week's shows. Uh, as I was saying earlier, Matt, who came in from Olympia, Washington, supported This Is Hell at thisishell.com, and he told us he would drop uh, by during office hours this week to pick up his gifts, which he did. Matt then emailed us to say, hey, Chuck and Alex, big thanks to you guys and Leo and Pete and the pool players, regulars at Carries for being so cool and welcoming during office hours on Wednesday. It definitely seems like the kind of bar that would restore your faith in humanity a little after researching so much hellish news. I'm really happy the studio is as far along as it is and proud to support the show. I'll be in Chicago until tomorrow, that's Sunday. Not totally hooked up yet, so open to any suggestions of cool places to events. Worth checking out if you have them. Keep up the great work, Matt. You too can and should uh, on Matt's recommendation join us at Carrie's, the bar downstairs from our studio every Wednesday from 6pm to 9pm, 2251 West Devon. But this week, it's happening on Thursday, beginning at 9 p.m. Anything else I want to mention? No, we should just get to Andrew. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Joe Biden is awful, and there's no way his disorganized campaign and racist rec- record will land him the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. Is there? During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin catalogs evidence of our decreasing intelligence, or at least his. We'll also have what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show and others for supporting This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, live from the nightmare of want. This is hell. The current frontrunner, according to most polls in the race to be the Democratic Party's nominee for president of the United States, has a record that appears to be racist, sexist, anti-poor, pro-war, and very loyal to the financial industry, including supporting its deregulation that led to the collapse of 2008. Here to help us understand why Joe Biden is leading the polls and why he shouldn't be returning to This Is Hell, Andrew Coburn wrote the March Harper's cover story, No Joe, Joe Biden's Disastrous Legislative Legacy. How you doing, Andrew? Pretty good, pretty good. Although, you know, what you were just saying about Joe's 
Biden's lead in the polls is enough to depress one on a Saturday morning, but there you go. <laughs> it's very much enough to depress uh, people on a Saturday morning. And let me just ask you something about those polls real quick without even looking at my notes. One of the things that I saw on CNN when they were announcing that uh, Joe Biden had just entered the uh, primaries or primaries, the nomination process, uh, is that he was immediately leading the polls by significant numbers, doubling, more than doubling Bernie Sanders in those polls. And they were saying 50 percent of the votes that Joe Biden was getting or the support that he was getting were from people who were African-Americans. So, Andrew, as you know, all of these polls always last until the election, because, as you know, Herman Cain is our president right now. So what should we take from these kind of polls, poll numbers? You've been watching these you know, politics for years and years. What should we take from these original poll numbers, and why are they so overreported? Well, they're being overreported because, you know, the, the establishment um, obviously longs for Joe Biden. I mean, they uh, basically, you know, there's two things the establishment is really, really concerned about. One is to get rid of Trump. They don't like Trump for all sorts of <laughs> reasons that are pretty obvious, but and some maybe not so obvious. Um, but close behind is, is you know, to this, this nightmare they're faced with, which is the resurgent left in this country, the sudden, <laughs> sudden realization that, you know, large sections of the American people have a social conscience and can see the problems we're in and can see the solutions too, which they don't like at all. So the notion that, you know, the, 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 that you know, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, particularly those two, could uh, could somehow capture the nomination or, God forbid, the White House, you know, has them completely terrified. Uh, so naturally, they're ecstatic with joy to have this basically silly old geezer um, <laughs> who has, you know, as you said in your introduction, is, you know, extremely... I mean, basically the right of Richard Nixon sort of political views um, coming along and they're going to promote him as much as possible. You start by re- mentioning a conversation you had at the U.S. Capitol with former Senate Republican leader Trent Lott, who had become a high paid lobbyist after leaving leaving office. As Lott described to you, the men's room off of the White House dining room, room on Thursday nights, quote, in the past, on Thursday night, members of the leadership from both sides of the House would meet in here to smoke cigars, drink cheap bourbon, play gin rummy and discuss business. There was a chemistry. They understood each other. It was a magical thing. You describe how he sighed wistfully at the memory of a more harmonious age in which our elders and betters could arrange the nation's affairs behind closed doors. And you write, Biden has long served as high priest of the doctrine that our legislative problems derive merely from superficial disagreements rather than fundamental differences over matters of principle. Is Biden and was Lot correct? Are our disagreements superficial? And what does it say about the politics of both when they believe that is the case? Well, I mean, our disagreements are obviously very profound. Um, certainly, the disagreements of the, the ninety of the ninety nine percent with the one percent, or the ninety nine point nine percent with the point oh one percent. Obviously, the very fundamental. I mean, um, they've taken it all, and you know, we'd we'd like to have you know, like to have it back. That's the fundamental disagreement in this country. And of course, Biden. I should quickly point out they didn't you know it wasn't a men's room when they would meet and drink cheap bourbon and discuss the nation's affairs it was a little hideaway uh, controlled by a very racist leadership of the rules committee in those days who would stop any civil rights legislation he could um which is why 
Trent Lott remembers it so fondly. Um, and I have discovered, subsequently discovered this, didn't know when the article went to press, but I've had it confirmed that Biden was always in there. He was one of those people um, in in the 70s when he first got into the Senate. So, you know, that in a way, I mean, the you know, we're, we are ruled by, generally by, a, we have a one-party government, which is the party of business, party of the corporate party. Um, so, they, you know, there's disagreements within the uh, the corporate party are not very fundamental. They're, you know, they're about sort of hardly matters of deep substance that to do with, you know, perhaps where the goodies go and which which direction, particular direction. But on the fundamental issues that you and I and your listeners care about, the, you know, they they they're not they're in agreement about those too. They don't like them. <laughs> they don't like the idea of uh, you know of universal health care. They don't like the idea of uh, people not having to spend their, come out of college and spend their life as debt debt slaves um, uh, on their student loans. They don't, you know, they, they think the present situation is just fine. Is Joe Biden's political goal bipartisan consensus at all costs? And if so, what's wrong with prioritizing that over any principles you may have? Well, in effect, I mean, you know, there's, I'm all for bipartisanship when it's, you know, it depends what the issue is. I mean, we've had, for example, we've had a little, you know, a very welcome outbreak of, you know, limited, I must say, of, of bipartisanship over this disgusting war in Yemen, um, where, you know, they have, have managed to get a few few Republicans, not enough, unfortunately, um, you know, to vote to stop U.S. participation in that war. You know, there are some very fine... Um, sort of of the libertarian wing of the Republican Party, Congressional Republican Party, people like Justin Amash and I know Rand Paul, maybe even, uh, and of course the late great Walter Jones, who was a terrific guy. Um, and they, you know, very, they're very, whatever their views on other things, are very principled on the matter of foreign wars and the, you know, these unco- completely unconstitutional foreign foreign wars we still have, uh, we don't still have, we have more and more of. Um, so I'm all for that kind of bipartisanship. But when what it tends to mean, especially as expressed by people like Joe Biden, and he's not alone in this, is basically having the Democratic Party, Democratic Party representatives vote the Republican way. I mean, the organizer here in Virginia, where I'm sitting right now, refers to them as Republicrats. Um, you know, and <clears throat> these are Republicrats. And by what Joe means by bipartisanship is, for example, most disgracefully, agreeing with the Republicans on cutting, cutting, not just reforming, cutting Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid. I mean, he said that on a number of occasions. How any decent Democrat, you know, so-called Democrat can support him in these circumstances, I don't know. That's what Joe means by bipartisanship. He was very proud of the bipartisan way that he fought to lock up millions and millions of black people in the, you know, with his crime bills in the 80s, 80s and 90s. That was a beautiful exercise in bipartisanship as far as he was concerned. So that's why, you know, I think uh, bipartisanship is a dirty word most, most of the time. Is it anti-democratic? What is bipartisanship's impact on democratic debate? Well, stifling. You know, I mean, that was what Clinton did. 
yeah, big time. Uh, Bill Bill Clinton, um, you know, with his. Uh, as someone said, it's not an original observation on my part. That basically, Bill Clinton's career was, you know, the notable high points were betrayal. You know, the betrayal of the of the working class with NAFTA, the betrayal of the of his black voters with the crime bill of 1994, uh, the betrayal of all of the, of all of us with the Telecommunications Act of. 1995, uh, uh, the betrayal of, you know, <laughs> of the global economy with his deregulation, like the repeal of um, repeal of Glass-Steagall in 99. I mean, that, that were, they were all bipartisan because, you know, the, the corporate party, the corporate, you know, corporate constituency was all for these things. And, you know, the right wingers were all for locking up black people and the... Uh, you know, the industrialists were all for NAFTA. Um, that was all by the very bipartisan mis- missions and celebrated by, you know, our rulers at the time as, you know, beautiful exercises and bipartisanship. So that's what bipartisanship means. And you can see it now in this current Congress, you know, in nine, 2018, after, you know, tremendous efforts, um, great, you know, enthusiasm, the Democrats flipped the House. And, you know, it was genuine and that was spurred unquestionably by genuine outrage by an aroused population at, you know, the enormities of the Republican rule and under Trump. Um, but because, you know, the Democratic Party had been careful, done its best to select very right wing candidates in a number of winnable swing seats, that's now being set, taken as a, you know, as a vote for bipartisanship. You know, we've got you know, some of the freshman class who say, you know, I was elected to reach across the aisle. I was elected to, you know, see the other the other person's point of view, uh, to see the Republican point of view. And God help us vote the Republican way. I mean, it's, um, you know, that's why, for example, um, you know, right now we're heading for at least a $733 billion defense budget because the progressive Democrats in the House wanted to Cut it, actually cut it back to the number that Trump had asked for, oddly enough, to 700 billion. But no, the bipartisan wing, i.e., you know, the right wing, or so called, they like to call themselves centrist Republicans, held out for a you know, bigger defense budget. And that's what we're going to get. You point out it was bipartisan accord, after all, that brought us the permanent war economy, the war on drugs, the mass incarceration of black people, 1990s welfare reform, Wall Street deregulation and the con- uh, the uh, consequent $16 trillion in bank bailouts, the 2001 authorization, authorization of use of military force and other atrocities, too numerous to mention. To you, what explains why bipartisan consensus gets such a pass, pass and especially in liberal media like on MSNBC and CNN, and is applauded when it has such a poor track record. Has bipartisan consensus done anything good of late? And does that does the bad outweigh the good? Does the good outweigh the bad? Well, I don't know. I can't think of much as good. I mean, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, there was this laudable bipartisan effort by, you know, what I think the centrists would call the extremists in both parties, like extremists who think we shouldn't be basically dist- destroying, taking part in the destruction of an entire country, which is this, this utterly you know, dis, disgusting, is the word, war in Yemen, where, you know, they're basically trying, doing their very best to starve millions and millions of people and destroy their homes and destroy their economy. Um, and, you know, it was extremist bipartisanship that's 
made a little, put a little spoke in that wheel. But no, bipartisan, I think, you know, the list you just read out says it all. It's bipartisan consensus that has got us the really disastrous developments of the last, uh, you know, 60, 70 years. So let's talk about his electability. That's the thing that we keep getting beaten with, like by a cudgel. Uh, you write, if the system is indeed broken, it is because interested parties are doing their best to break it rather than admit this. Biden has long found it more profitable to assert that political divisions can be settled by men endowed with statesmanlike vision and goodwill. In other words, men such as himself. Andrew, yeah, does, I mean, does, does, the, state, does statesmanship, vision and goodwill, do you think that beats fear and anger? Uh, well, it, when it's sort of very hypocritical, <laughs> as in Biden's case, you know, like <laughs> I find it so disgusting that he he's selling himself and the media, to, you know, swallows it. So I don't say that he's doing I have to say he's doing slightly better than I'd expected. I mean, the you know, the lie is is selling better than than um, certainly than he deserves. Um you know that the uh, you know he's never done anything for the working class. I mean he, um, I mean he certainly, you know he voted for for NAFTA. He voted for the you know for the normal trade relations with China in 2000, whatever that was called, which really you know that was the destruction of the U.S. manufacturing economy. You know when he's been asked to help out unions, most the, you know most of the time. I mean he can point to a few votes the other way, but generally. You know he hasn't he, he he hasn't so you know he's selling himself as a you know comf- you know cozy old Uncle Joe and that sort of going over I guess going over well the media love it uh, the corporate media will that last I don't think I don't think so I think people um, I think once he has to actually sort of answer a question or two about what he's going to do you know if you look at his you know all he's doing campaigning now at his when he stops at, a, you know, he goes to a meeting. He sort of tells a few, you know, anecdotes, and he he uh, refers to his close relationship with Barack Obama, which is his main selling point. I should talk about that in a second. Um, he, you know, he skips light very lightly over anything to do with healthcare or uh, you know anything that people are actually concerned about. And let me say about Obama. I mean, the thing I think the main thing he has going for him. And um, particularly, you mentioned at the top of, at the beginning of this interview, the you know that the he's getting very high numbers among the uh, the black black voters. I think that's Obama nostalgia. Uh, you know, Obama, very undeservedly in my view, you know, has this golden aura uh, around him. Um, you know, for what he, for the, you know the the eight golden years of Obama rule, and you know the. Uh, African-American population remember that fondly. Not that he ever did that much for them, I have to say, but still. Um, and I think, you know, Joe Biden is, you know, seeking to, uh, you know, ride that as much as he can, which is kind of ironic because it wasn't, wasn't clear to me that Biden particularly wanted him to run or was going to support him very much. I mean, um, Biden pointed, oh, sorry, Obama Obama pointedly didn't give hand over his donors list to uh, to Biden. He was, uh, you know, offering help to O'Rourke and to, um, you know, the mayor, uh, Mayor Buttigieg. Um, you know, when Bi- when and uh, you know, Biden has now had to tell this tremendous lie, which is to explain why o- Obama hasn't endorsed him. He said, "I asked Obama not to endorse him." 
one if you believe that. <laughs> if you believe that, there's a bridge for sale. You know, <laughs> can you believe? I mean, it was such a sort of awe-inspiring lie that uh, you know, I sort of fell off my chair. All right. So, what does it say to you about Obama? What does it say to you about Biden? That by Bi- that Obama picked Joe Biden as his running mate, or maybe what it says about Democratic Party politics, because you point out. Uh, the way in which he treated Anita Hill and the way that he supported Clarence Thomas. Why the hell would Barack Obama pick Joe Biden, of all people, with the horrible record he had on race relations? Why would he pick Joe Biden to be his running mate? Well, it tells you a lot about Barack Obama. You know, he was, in my view, was never too much about principle. And, uh, you know, he, um, you know, he was this, you know, remember Obama in 2008 wasn't the sort of, you know, gray-haired statesman as, we have today, or so-called statesman, you know, he was this young neophyte who, you know, served a bit of a, a term in the Senate and had never really done anything, had never run anything. Um, so he felt that Biden, God help us, lent him gravitas. Um, um, I think he, well, I know his Biden's, uh, sorry, Obama's staff really regretted the choice during that campaign because, you know, Biden's a practically sort of lazy campaigner. Um, and they were always, you know, he he hated taking orders from the Obama campaign managers. And as, as I say in the piece, you know, his aide, his aides would have to say to him, got three words for you, Joe, Air Force Two. You know, you're going to be vice president. So shut up and do what you're told. Um, you know, he's, uh, but it, I mean, <clears throat> and actually, uh, Biden is selling himself as having been a successful vice president. I guess he's, successful in that he didn't get caught with his hand in the till or, um, you know, some of the, the such, uh, you know, there were no, the press, what scandals as there were, were ignored by the press. I mean, we're hearing a little one, little bit about one now, which was Joe's involvement in Ukraine. As I mentioned in the piece, um, Obama sort of delegated some major foreign policy areas to Biden, including Ukraine. Well, Biden, where his record, in my view, was pretty, you know, it was horrifying. He he was always pushing to sort of send more arms to Ukraine, to back up this you know, very right-wing government there, to heighten tensions with the Russians. And he's, um, you know, and he's boasted. He likes to boast about this great moment when there was a public prosecutor, the sort of Ukrainian equivalent of an attorney general, who, uh, um, when Biden as Biden tells the story, was very corrupt. And Biden went said to the president of Ukraine, I'm going to hold up a billion dollars in aid. You won't get that money unless and until you fire that prosecutor. And the prosecutor got fired. What he forgot to mention was what that prosecutor was actually doing was investigating Hunter Biden, Biden's son, and his very curious relationship with this natural gas company, which was paying Hunter Biden a very corrupt natural gas company uh, run by a guy who had all his assets in England, for instance, uh, seized, uh, frozen. Um, and they were sending Hunter Biden, I know, $50,000 a week. So, you know, and but so, you know, the, the, you know the, the guy, the prosecutor is investing, investigating Hunter and Joe very helpfully gets the prosecutor fired. And that's a scandal. And don't think the Republicans aren't going to make a lot about that and make a lot of noise about that. I know. That's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about Russiagate. And if 
uh, Republican senators, congressmen might be able to, under a Joe Biden presidency, uh, weaponize the law and use it in order to uh, harass or even try to uh, impeach or remove the president. It would seem like there are a lot of potential investigations when it comes to Joe Biden, whether it comes with his it, uh, his relationship with banks or his relationship with the Ukraine. How ripe do you think Joe Biden would be for a congressional investigation if he was the president of the United States? Well, uh, I'm certainly Ukraine is a very, very rich target, rich environment, I would say. Um in you know, other areas, he had a big say in, like um, Central America and um, Iraq. I mean, they were certainly disastrous for the people of peoples of Central America and Iraq. I can't say that they would uh, classify as, you know, qualify as scandals in, you know, as defined in terms of congressional investigations. But uh, you know, and Hunter Biden, um, you know, Hunter is in the. You know, it could be a big liability. It's not good. I mean, um, you know, particularly, particularly the Ukrainian issue, and we, you know, God knows what else. But uh, I'd say he'd be vulnerable there. You write that in subsequent years, as uh, Bill Clinton and Joe Biden's crime legislation, particularly on mandatory sentences, attracted effects. Uh, efforts at a reform, Biden began expressing a certain remorse. You then quote Biden saying at a Senate hearing in 2008, I am part of the problem that I've been trying to solve since then because I think the disparity between crack and powder cocaine sentences is way out of line. However, you add that there's little indication that his words were matched by actions, especially after he moved to the vice presidency the following year. And he also has his regrets about passing Glass-Steagall, which led to which one of the, one of the things that led to the financial collapse of 2008. So, what is Biden's record as vice president when it comes to matters of crime, incarceration, race, and banking regulations? Well, <laughs> it's a uh, little or nothing. You know, I mean, it's uh, he's, as you say, he babbled, and as I say in the piece, uh, no sign that his words were matched by deeds. I mean, for example, as I mentioned. Um, when Biden becomes vice president and his Senate seat was open, there was still a couple of years left to run in the term into which he'd been elected. So, um, so he uh, he got them to appoint his longtime aide Ted Kaufman, a former chief of staff, who's actually a pretty decent guy. And Kaufman uh, announced that he was, you know, he introduced a bill with Sherrod Brown to break up the banks. You know, a, a very I suppose it's called a radical bill, a very obvious and necessary law would have been to break up these enormous financial conglomerates that had you know, led us over the cliff, uh, or pushed us over the cliff, put it that way. And there, I know for a fact that Biden did not lift a finger to push to help this, did not. There were no calls to the Justice Department, no calls to the congressional leadership to say, hey, Brown Kaufman is, you know, I'd like to express my support. He stayed shut up tight as a clam on crime legislation again no i mean i mean the whole record of the obama obama administration on crime criminal justice reform is very lamentable i mean towards the end there was this sort of pitiful effort to let out a few people at a time on you know all these tens of thousands of people locked up on you know marijuana charges and things like that and obama and his equally awful 
Attorney General Eric Holder sort of slow walked that just because Obama was timid and, you know, was terrified of ever being called any kind of a radical or progressive. And Joe went along with that. I mean, the only sort of progressive thing that Joe was ever sort of known for as vice president was he did, I guess, was the night of running for president at some point. He came out for, you know, same-sex marriage ahead of Obama. You know, Obama was, as usual, sort of, you know, havering on that, couldn't make up his mind whether to be for it or against it. And uh, and Biden suddenly jumped up and said, I'm for it, which to Obama was furious about. But uh, that's the only thing. I mean, so you're going to be hearing a lot from Biden about that in the campaign. You write Biden's recollections of his involvement in Central American affairs are no more forthright and no more insightful. There is no mention of the 2008 coup in Honduras in his memoir, endorsed and supported by the United States that displaced the elected president, Manuel Zelaya, nor of that country's subsequent descent into the rule of a corrupt oligarchy accused of ties to drug traffickers. How do you think Biden would act as president? if he was president today when it comes to what is happening in Venezuela? Because Elizabeth Warren has already promised to end sanctions if elected. Sanctions the Center for Economic Policy and Research and Jeffrey Sachs estimate have already killed 40,000 people. So how do you think he would act as president when it comes to Venezuela? Well, I think we know how he would. I don't have to make a guess here. I think we know how he would act. I mean, he would be there with you know, most of the, uh, with the rest of the Democratic establishment. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is a heroic exception here. Um, not even sure what Sanders has said about it, but certainly she's out front and, you know, she's a person of principle, unlike most of them. Um, no, uh, you know, um, Biden would be all for, um, I don't think you'd find much daylight between him and John Bolton. Um, you know, and I hope before... I just want to make sure we do mention the most astonishing statement Biden's made so far, which is a few days ago when he said how fond he was of Dick Cheney. And he liked Dick Cheney was a really decent guy. So God knows what Biden will get up to in the national security field. So that just I don't really just amazes me because one of the things I was thinking when I was reading your piece is that maybe Joe Biden was just accurately representing his constituency within Delaware. But then you said that the senator who has replaced him has very different policies. So can Joe Biden say that I'm just representing my uh, constituency accurately when the person who took his seat has almost the opposite policies on some issues? Well, I to be clear, Ted Kaufman, who took the seat, declared when he got the seat that he wasn't going to run for re-election. So, you know, gave him complete freedom. Um, but yeah, I mean, the idea, I mean, the Biden, you know, the Biden's most, most notable loyalty throughout his career has been to the financial industry in Delaware. I mean, remember, Delaware is, you know, is a, as one of a Biden's former aides said, he said, oh, we were talking about this. He said, you got to remember, Del- Delaware is, is the corporate whore state. And it is the corporate whore state. So, and, and Biden, you know, Biden was <coughs> ever faithful to that, uh, to to that and you know always did what the credit card companies and the banks told him to do um didn't like to doesn't like to talk about that much but that's been his main loyalty but yeah i mean it's these you know these people who pursue these politicians who pursue utterly shameful policies such as biden has consistently you know always blame it blame it on the people oh you know 
if I were, if it was up to me, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't be a slave to <laughs> to the credit card companies or you know to in favor of segregating schools or yeah. But it's the, it's my seg- it's my constituents. So, you know, first of all, it's not clear that's true. Um, and secondly, you know. Whatever happened to me? If, if Joe is the sort of man of principle he pretends to be, he would have, you know, he would have been able to do the right thing, but obviously not so. So, um, how much? Because you know we're up here at Northwestern University broadcasting from there, and a lot of people who are listeners are, I'm certain, even people who are even elderly are still paying off their student loans. What has Joe Biden's role been in the student loan crisis? Oh, zilch. I mean, uh, oh, well, no, more, more than, no, I, let me take that back. No, he's made it worse. I mean, he he was very much the major, the, the force behind making it impossible for, almost impossible for students to get out of, you know, the crushing debts by declaring bankruptcy. I mean, that was a major item on his agenda. No, his his role has been wholly, you know, on on the wrong side. It's not... Not that he hasn't done anything; he's done a lot, all of it bad. Started talking about uh, starting the conversation talking about bipartisanism, and one thing I kept thinking about when reading your piece is: is bipartisanism or the goal or objective of bipartisanism is that a uniquely Democratic Party campaign strategy to be reaching across the aisle? Because I could definitely be wrong. But I don't remember hearing that as much or as much of a concern among Republicans. But again, I'm probably wrong. But is this just a uniquely Democratic Party campaign strategy? And if so, why do the Democrats get engaged in this, but Republicans don't? Well, um, I think the answer to that, too, is one is, you know, Republicans talk about bipartisanship, too. The difference difference is that Democrats actually do it. (laughs) We don't... uh, Republicans don't sort of they they pursue their own you know their agenda the agenda they're paid to pursue and they certainly there's no nonsense with um, adopting democratic you know democratic positions um, uh, whereas the Democrats the you know poor fools because I guess they're being paid by the same people you know they are they are bipartisan I and mean, you know as I explained earlier but for them really bipartisan means doing what the you know, voting the Republican way. Um, so, um, no, I think it's, you know, it's very pernicious. I mean, you know, as I want to make clear, you know, I'm all for people to come in together and agreeing to do the right thing. But the trouble is, what I don't like and people no one should support is when they come together to do the wrong thing, which is usually almost invariably what bipartisanship means. You call bipartisanism a triumph of form over substance. Is that why the media likes bipartisanism, the product of bipartisanism? Is it because they, it's the media? They like form and substance, not so much. Yeah, exactly so. And it's, um, I mean, you know, don't get me started on the media. It is so, I used to think, always thought it was bad. And now it's sort of unbelievably bad. <laughs> I mean, thank, thank God we've got you. Um, I mean, I, I, I can barely, I can barely make myself read, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post every morning to see the sort of relentless, you know, the the way they're covering Venezuela, the, the way they cover more or less anything. It's just it's utter disgrace. 
and so tendentious. And that's, you know, they've been promoting until Joe Biden finally declared they were busily pumping up this um, this fellow for, you know, from South Bend, Indiana, whose record, the moment, you know, anyone took a look at it, is actually disgraceful. You know, he's basically, he's, you know, he's, He's got the, the most undiverse administration in recent years in the city. He's selling off the public parks. He fired the black police chief. He's knocked down. He had this big revival of downtown, which consisted, in, which meant he locked, knocked down a lot of poor people, poor black people's houses. He's a total disgrace. And um, and yet, you know, so many people. I actually, I I know people who I think, used to think were quite sane and intelligent talking about, oh, he's very impressive, impressive man of stature. Um, no, I don't think so. He's a horrible little sort of ambitious pipsqueak who's, you know, saying, careful not to avoid the sort of ruling, the ruling class. Um, uh, careful to avoid, uh, you know, upsetting the ruling class, I should say. Um, you know, he's declared his fealty to Netanyahu. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's, Oh, he said the one thing that really got my attention was when Buttigieg said he was troubled. He was troubled by Obama releasing Chelsea Manning after just seven years oh, in jail. Jesus. And he was troubled by that. I mean, God help us. This guy's running as a Democrat. I mean, it's just disgraceful. Uh, I've just got one last question for you, Andrew, but I just wanted to say my, I should say, favorite but most awful part of media coverage of Venezuela so far was the front page article, I think it was Wednesday's New York Times, uh, talking about the coup. And the first sentence in the article was, nobody ever said regime change would be easy. (laughs) I know. I I didn't know what to laugh or cry when I saw that. It was awful. We have been speaking with Andrew Coburn. He wrote the March Harper's cover story. No Joe, Joe Biden's disastrous legislative legacy. Andrew has been on our show so many times, I can't count. Uh, In 2016 alone, he was on our show three times. Um, But it's been since 2016 since we had you on, Andrew, and so I want to apologize for that. Andrew's most recent book is Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. And, uh, yeah, you can find all of his writing uh, usually over at Harper's. Uh, So my uh, final question for you, our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Considering Biden's sexist, racist, anti-immigrant, pro-bank, pro-war, unwillingness to try to stop the student loan crisis, uh, inability, as you point out, to actually ever organize a campaign in the past, is Joe Biden's candidacy doomed again? Will he even get to the primaries? Well, given that they finally found someone as awful as Donald Trump for him to run against. (laughs) Someone, you know, even worse in every way, uh, even more horrible. They may, you know, they may drag him over at least, you know, a couple of early finish lines. Um, You know, if we lived in normal, well, what passes for normal times, the (laughs) normally upsetting times as opposed to extremely upsetting times like we have now, um, I'd say absolutely not. You know, the the old old fool will fall over sooner rather than later. But they may they may prop him upright and um, and keep him going. Um, you know, because I said at the beginning, you know, his his mission is to hopefully defeat Trump and, but hardly less importantly, defeat the left. That we can't have. 
Andrew, it's always a pleasure. Be ready for me to annoy you for the rest of your life and have you back <laughs> hey. on the show. Uh, the, Co- the Coburns are some of the best and uh, biggest supporters of our show, and I really appreciate all of you and Patrick and what Alex did for us. So I really appreciate it, Andrew, and it's great to talk to you again. Likewise. I catch up. This is hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. During the moment of truth, in a couple minutes, Dorchin catalogs evidence of our decreasing intelligence, or at least his. Speaking of our horrible business model, on Patreon this week, I went off on the arrogance of the elite within the media as they were cheerleading for war this week and their seemingly universal support for a military coup to overthrow the government of Venezuela using phrases like, our hemisphere and warmongering with unsubstantiated claims of Russian military interference. Tuesday was really a watershed moment for the mainstream news media, and it's across-the-board support for war and regime change. And we all know how well that same cheerleading worked out for millions in the Iraq war. But you can only hear me take on the arrogance of the elites who are rushing uh, us into another run-up to a war They've deemed inevitable by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. Last week during the regular Saturday show, we talked to historian Donna Merch about how white privilege caused the opioid crisis. So on this past week's Patreon podcast, after I talked about the arrogance of the elites and Venezuela, uh, we played the December 2012 interview with Charles Safe. He's a professor of journalism at New York University and winner of the 2009 Davis Prize from the History of Science Society. Uh, he was on to discuss uh, uh, his article that he had posted at Scientific American, how drug company money is undermining science. But again, you can't hear my talk on the media elites or how big pharma undermines science unless you become a supporter of This Is Hell at Patreon, patreon.com slash thisishell. Special thanks for joining us on Patreon this week goes to Chris and Steve. Thanks for joining us on Patreon, and you should join us on Patreon as we'll be sharing more and more exclusive content only for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell, including this Wednesday, May 8th, and Thursday, May 9th. We are doing a two-hour live, two live streaming podcast each day, but only... Patreon subscribers will have access to the live stream. Then next Saturday, May 11th, we will be playing the live recordings in their entirety as I will yet again be trying to celebrate Christmas with the in-laws. In the past, we'd have to be playing best of episodes, but because of the great support of our Patreon subscribers, we actually built a studio and we can do this for you when I'm not here in town. Become a This Is Hell subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell and every week get exclusive content that only our subscribers are getting now. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, during the moment of truth, Jeff catalogs evidence of our decreasing intelligence, or at least his. We have some listeners to thank for sharing, for supporting, tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex, Jerry, This Is Hell, your home for futilitarian content. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Welcome to the Moment of Truth, the thirst that is the drink. It's a dangerous world. How do you make it safe? You can't make everyone safe. You have to start by making yourself safe. How? By deflecting. So I hear deflection, it's the coward's way, and you got to give it to cowards. They're all safety first.
I'd like to deflect a few things because I've heard that's what clever people do. They deflect. Or maybe not clever people, successful people. I'm not sure what characterizes these people, to be honest. But deflection seems to be thought of as a successful strategy. I'm not sure for what. But successful on its own terms or on some terms. I heard from an anonymous source that at UCLA, a stupid, uninoculated millennial may have exposed 500 people or so to the measles. Those people were quarantined, and the school has been hushing it up, but you didn't hear it from me. My writing partner is saddened that chimps in the Detroit Zoo are no longer allowed to smoke. I agree it's an unfortunate decision. Everything gets ruined by these priggish blue-stocking martinets. One of my fondest childhood memories is of going to the Great Ape House and seeing Joe Mendy II relaxing with a cigarette and the morning paper. What are the chimps supposed to do now when they're having coffee or a beer? Trump writes up an executive order that health workers can refuse to give medical care for religious reasons. So if a satanic pharmacist doesn't want to sell you reading glasses because you'll use them to read the Bible, you're out of luck, Junior. Look, I wasted my life. I did it just to see what that would be like. And it's fine. It's miserable. Yeah, but lots of people are miserable who haven't wasted their lives at all. They've created quite beautiful things like restaurants or symphonies or babies. Yet they can be miserable, physically miserable, living in misery. I'm just miserable because I'm haunted by self-disgust because I've wasted my life. And I did it on purpose just to see what it would be like. And it's great, really. But it was a stupid thing to do in other ways. But then, wasn't it stupid of us to allow things to get to this point where everything is melting and burning and only incredibly stupid, vile people are allowed to hold public office? That's not so smart, right? So why is it an issue that I've stupidly allowed my life and my potential to rot and vaporize? I mean, haven't we all been just as stupid in our own way? And by our own way, I mean your own way, because I've already accounted for myself. I'm outside the equation. I wasn't trying to do anything smart. I was just trying to get away without doing anything smart. But you all, you've actually been living. You've been trying. I mean, Yo-Yo Ma and Ai Weiwei and you others, you've been really trying. And sure, you've done some beautiful, meaningful stuff. But in the end, you know, all the coral is going to be bleached and dead and cities are all destroyed. Floods, you know, stuff like that. It hasn't really done a damn thing to forestall the end of our world. It's just made pretty noises and objects. It's made people think. It's made people do things. But whatever it made them think and do, it didn't really stop the steamroller of destruction coming for us. Not to dwell on destruction. They took a picture of a black hole. Did you see this thing? And what's more destructive than a black hole? Beyond the event horizon, everything turns into nonsense. It's so beautiful. It's a torus. It's a toroidal shape. And here I am. You don't need me to interpret the extreme gravity for you. I'm the guy who wasted his life, remember? I wasted my life to see what would happen. Could it really be accomplished, the wasting of one's life? More importantly, could I do it? Because I'm no one special. I accepted the mission because it's important to me to be no one special. Not just anyone can waste his life, and yet just anyone did. It takes a really extraordinary person to commit to be ordinary, but not just ordinary. Yes. Maybe yes. Maybe just ordinary. Yes. Maybe. So I wasted my life. That's such a tragedy. I'm not going to get worked up about it. You need to get right with God. No, not really. But check your own whatever. Because from where I sit, lying down, staring at the ceiling, things look pretty bad for everyone. Legit bad. Bad in legit fashion. I mean, we've almost poisoned all our water. What were we thinking? And you all have to take responsibility for that. I don't, because I was busy wasting my life. We're killing all life on this planet at an alarming rate. And by we, I mean you. You did this. I was busy with my life's all-encompassing project of wasting my life. It kept me busy every single minute of every day. Seriously, you try it.
too late. Am I right? You've already achieved. You've overachieved. Yes, you have. It's way too late for you to waste your lives now. What can I tell you as someone who's gone beyond that event horizon of the wasted life? Can I tell you it's beautiful here? Can I? I can. It is sometimes and horrible, much like your own lives. But I've gone over the event horizon where matter is, I don't know, it just maybe it's just we don't know. And by we, I mean you. You don't know. You don't understand. It's beyond understanding. They could have left well enough alone. They could have let the damn chimps enjoy their smoking time. They could have kept the abortion legal. They could have used the Electoral College for its intended purpose and set Donald Trump on fire when they had the chance. And they say, I've wasted my life. The Electoral College wasted its life. They've been cheaping out with the military. The Navy had some seriously understaffed battleships. That's why they keep crashing into things and killing people. Same with the Air Force. No, it's not just public education that they're starving. It's gotten so bad, they're even pocketing money that should be keeping sailors and soldiers and pilots safe on the job. Well, members of the armed forces are just workers after all. Why should they be safe? Why should they have any more safety than any other slobs? The embezzling class. They really are awful people. And by they, I don't mean you. Although, if it is you, shame on you. Look, I just want to deflect. It's the name of the game, right? Sure, I wasted my life. But let's face it, we're all in this together. And by we, I mean you. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! Uh, I just unplugged my headphones. Hold it one second. Oh <laughs> I can't believe I just did that. Jeffy, Jeffy, I can't Jeff. I left my front door open throughout that whole thing. No, really? I've left my back door unlocked several times in Chicago, and nothing's ever happened, so I guess not going to No, work. there's just a lot of noise leaks in here. It's, this is the noisiest neighborhood in L.A. What is the name of the neighborhood? Fairfax. Mm-hmm. Sounds it's the Fairfax, right near West Hollywood. It's kind of between West Hollywood and Hollywood. All right. It's where, um, it's where uh, uh, Alicia Silverstone's character went to high school in uh, Clueless. All right. That helps me out. <laughs> and there's just, you know, it's, it's um, there's just a lot of yelling that goes on here. All right. A lot then. of old people falling down and yelling for help and, and uh, schizophrenic and very troubled people, uh, homeless, kicking things and starting fires and stabbing each other. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a wilderness. It kind of sounds like what I hear out my office window over on Devon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a similar community. There are there are five Jewish communities that have collided, by the way, in addition to all the other communities that I mentioned, and the skateboard punks, and the skateboard punks of color, and the hip-hop skateboard punks who somehow don't get along with the skateboard punks of color. Hey, do you have those... They're all lined up for stuff. They're always lined up at some outside some store to get a sneaker or a T-shirt. Do you have those stupid uh, scooters yet? Oh, my God. They're darting out of... Whenever I'm driving, I'm driving Lyft, right? I'm driving. They'll come flying out of nowhere. I I swear, I'm I'm going to wipe them out. So they're all... Not to mention the motorcyclists. We have motorcyclists in our carpool lanes. How is a motorcycle a carpool? (laughs) Weaving in and out. Uh, L.A., the place... Oh, my God. Hey, wait a second. Yeah. This is Andrew Coburn. Yeah. Is this Andrew Miles Coburn? Yes. Why did he include the Why did you include the Miles in his introduction on the uh, on the uh, you know on the on the social media? Because I, I felt that was I felt that was too much information. Uh, same reason I put Jeffrey Yosefus Dorchin on there. <laughs> You're just being complete. I am being complete, and I just don't want to sit there and dick around with <laughs> deleting stupid things. It's not, it's not my I fault. I already typed it. I 
Can't go back. Well, it's, it's not my fault that you went as Jeffrey Yosefus or he went as Andrew Miles. There must be a reason for it, you know? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Can't help don't it. Don't ask. All right, Jeffy, until next week. All right. Well, have a fun trip after you do the thing. Yeesh. Yeah, we'll see. Christmas, right? You're reenacting the Christmas story? Yeah, supposedly, you're... supposedly. And guess what we're doing it? Uh, at a place that really you really think about Christmas because of what it's called. I'll be at Starved Rock, which is named after a place where a whole bunch of Native Americans were on a rock and the white people at the bottom starved them out till they all died. So enjoy your holidays. <laughs> all right, Jeff. Right. See. All right, let's get to some stuff here. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the word out about this is hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or whatever. Jeff's moment of truth. This is hell is a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to Patrick, Nick, Jin, Robert, Howard, Jeff, Virginia, Julie, Alexander, Alexandra, Astrid, Victoria, Steve, Johnny, Jeff with one F, Angela, the United States of Africa, Marisol, Bobby, Kathy, Marco, Victoria, Captain Moonlight, Peter, Kevin, Francesco, Anarchimedia, Rich, Gorilla, Gramophonics, Jeffrey, Gianna, and Krimsky. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell. However you share our show or any of its content, we truly appreciate your support. This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is more like a think and drink, happens at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, and it usually happens on Wednesday. But because we are recording on Wednesday night and on Thursday night, we are doing the office hours this week on Thursday, beginning at 9 p.m. Again, I just want to repeat all this about what's happening next week. If you want to hear This Is Hell live next week on Tuesday, May 8th and Wednesday, May 9th at 7 p.m. Chicago time, you must be a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will then be premiering those live recordings on WNUR next Saturday, May 11th, in our regularly scheduled time. But if you want to hear those shows live, you have to be a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Uh, and Alex, who do we have anybody confirmed for next week's show? Yeah, I got the, the show halfway booked, uh, so I'm almost there. I will have political scientist uh, Cedric Johnson on to talk about his Jacobin pieces, what black life actually looks like. For too long, the left has organized based on caricatures of black political life. If it wants to win, it needs to start recognizing the role of class in black America. And then uh, Black Agenda Reports, Danny Haifong will be on to talk about his new book, American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. And I'm uh, still working on those other two guests. If you are an artist or you know an artist, that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our anniversary party in July, on July 27th. Email me or... Uh, Email me your or their art, and we'll definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 This Is Art show. Again, email me your art or someone's art you like to chuck at thisishell.com, and they can be part of this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our anniversary slash listener appreciation party every year. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well. So if you are an artist or a musician, or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our anniversary slash listener appreciation party this year at Carrie's on July 27th, email me at chuck at com, 
And here's even bigger news. In July, not only are we having our anniversary and listener appreciation party, not only are we having listeners being featured in the artwork at the art show, not only are we hoping to have listeners playing the music and performing the music at our listener appreciation show, but throughout the entire month of July, we will be having only listener-suggested guests on the show, the guests you tell us to have here on This Is Hell, all to thank you for all of your support. So July is not only when we're having our annual listener appreciation party, but the whole month will be dedicated to you. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I'm really sorry we didn't get to the Beto O'Rourke stuff for the second week in a row. I'd sit here and read right now for another minute, but that would really cramp my schedule. Uh, so we already know Alex told us who's going to be on the Patreon podcast that we're going to be doing on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, or Wednesday and Thursday at 7 p.m. Chicago time. And then we'll be back on May 18th live here in the studio for some more hell. This is hell where the coolest musicians get their news. I want to thank Jeff Dorchin for doing the Moment of Truth, uh, Alex uh, Jerry for producing this week's show, Leo O'Connell for producing this week's Patreon episode. Also, thanks to all of our guests, Andrew Coburn, who wrote the March Harper's cover story, No Joe, on Joe Biden, uh, investigative journalist Yasha Levin, who wrote the Medium.com article, The Racist and High-Tech Origins of America's Modern Census. If you missed any of these interviews, you can go to thisishell.com in a couple of hours. They'll all be posted there. Thanks to anthropologist Reuben Anderson for returning to This Is Hell. This time he was on to discuss his new book, No Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our Politics. Thanks to Thea Riofrancos, who wrote the In These Times article, A Path to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice, as well as the Descent Magazine article, What Comes After Extractivism. This week's hangover cure is Spice Bag, the takeaway favorite of the Irish, but made by the Chinese. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms toward the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.